Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and our week in IndyCar show. We have our man Alexander Rossi coming off an epic, epic butt-kicking for sure last weekend at Road America, the Rev Group Grand Prix. Then we close with our interviews, Augie Pabst, definite, really important, seriously important member of the Road to Indy family, his team currently in the USF 2000 series, doing big things, also a winner last weekend, also some pretty cool family lineage that Augie shares as we open up there. So we have our man, Mr. Rossi, follow with Mr. Pabst, and then I close with all of your questions. Want to do as we always do by opening the show and thanking those who do make it possible. That being Cooper Tires, those who happen to support the Road to Indy and provide tires for everything that happens there. Also the Justice Brothers, longtime friends, and also very, very active and engaged supporters of what we do here on the podcast. And also our awesome pals north of the border. Still a little bit raw about Toronto Raptors beating my Golden State Warriors, but nonetheless... Our pals at torontomotorsports.com. They have, I guess, their version of Christmas coming up here in the middle of July, the Toronto IndyCar race, where they have done a bunch of special things, just as they did for the Indy Memorabilia show in May. A little bit different, though. Some brand new things that are more Canadian-centric, definitely to support and celebrate our man James Hinchcliffe. Also, some really cool vintage indie memorabilia that they're going to have all set up at their big, well, I shouldn't say big, but I think of it as a very big presence at the Toronto Indie coming up. So if you can, check out torontomotorsports.com, t-shirts, stickers, die casts, books, you name it, all the stuff that hopefully you've come to love. Plus, they have a lot of really cool stuff intended for the Toronto Indie race, so if you're going to be in attendance please bring a lot of Canadian dollars with you because you're going to walk away with a lot of pretty amazing gear. Touch on a couple things before we get to Mr. Rossi. As I mentioned in our interview with him, I just found out this morning because I'm a little bit slow in the uptake, that a number of cars carried the pretty amazing sticker that my friend, Andy Blackmore made surprised me with that was carried at the 24 hours of Le Mans. That was indeed carried by a number of cars last weekend at road, America, all with me having no clue. So just found out and really, really, really happy to see that this is actually something that yet again, Derek Koska, uh, the owner of Toronto Motorsports, just did on his own, printed off about a hundred of the uh, stickers, just offering my wife some support, some moral encouragement, brought those to the track, gave them to both a friend of his at the Andretti Autosport team, also gave some to the mayor of Hinchtown, who asked for some time leading into one of the driver's meetings, and then apparently <laughs> passed them off to IndyCar race director Carl Novak to do some handing out. But nonetheless, really cool. I mean, I'm running out of ways, creative ways to say thank you, but I'm just always being given reasons to say thank you, which is an amazing thing in and of itself. So it was really cool to learn that a lot of cars carried that in support of my wife, I've yet to tell her. I'm going to go show her here shortly once we're done. But one carried by Alexander Rossi into victory lane. I mean, that's just, (laughs) that's nuts, right? I mean, to think that my wife's name, Chabrel, uh, was carried into an IndyCar, NTT IndyCar Series victory lane. 
uh, especially after Alexander did some serious butt whooping without trying to overstate the obvious parallel. That's the exact thing we are trying to do here. You know, I mentioned on the last last week's show, definitely been a, a significant slowdown in updates as to what's been going on with my wife and our early stages of fighting cancer off uh, in three three fronts. That's definitely, by and large, at her request, so we're going to honor that. Not a surprise, though, and I did mention that Monday was our first chemo treatment. Mentioned that on Twitter, I believe, and she did amazingly. It's a really long thing, five, six hours sitting in a chair, uh, having all kinds of chemicals pumped into your body. So she is amazing. That's nothing new. Uh, She just continues to remind me what strength and dignity and character and even humor looks like, even on really bad days. You know, it's just that smile or giving me a hard time or whatever it is threatening me in some way. Uh, if I don't do something, uh, it's just, she's amazing. So thank you. Thank you to everyone who continues to send in amazing notes and thoughts. I do my best. I'm still struggling via, I think, direct messages on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I do my best to get back to as many as I can, but I know I'm failing to do that in totality and the emails that come in the texts i think i've got three or four today i still need to uh, to get back to folks on but uh, you guys are just making sure that positivity and warmth is circling everything that we do so all of that stuff aside can mention that our man robin miller cracked open a really good silly season story to open the week all centered around our guest today alexander rossi and some of the things happening there. Been some really interesting speculation to follow uh, as a result of Robin's article, and I can't get into some of the things he knows, some of the things that I know, all because the timing is just not right. Also comes back to that question sometimes where folks, when we reveal that we know some things we can't talk about, isn't it our job as reporters to always take everything we know and run it straight to print? In some situations, yes. In others, no, where you know you're going to do damage and break things if you do that. And I guess if we were talking something a little bit more serious than sports reporting in IndyCar, if this was government, if this was politics, if this was serious, affecting large numbers of human lives type policy, the environment, animals, if we're sitting on things that we knew could improve lives, then... We would definitely be in the wrong. Would just say that in a case like this, where (laughs) wealthy people are going to continue to be wealthy, continue to be employed, uh, who they work for might change. New partners coming in to be a part of a program might change, but by and large, no one is going to be living on the streets, going hungry. Uh, There's no real reason to risk breaking some things that would, uh, I guess, news-wise, generate a lot of traffic, but indeed do more harm than good in the paddock. So just a little bit of quick background there. A lot of interesting folks. Some of you who, uh, in reading your comments to Robin's story, may or may not know it, but you've almost exactly described uh, teams and names and players and all kinds of things that are exactly 
taking place behind the scenes right now. So let's get going with Alexander. Love the hour that we spent. You all, you are blessing us with amazing questions. He seemed to enjoy it. Hoping to have him back here before too long. Then we'll move right into Augie Pabst. Then I'll be back to you here on the good old Week in IndyCar, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com with all the questions you have for me to wrap up the show. Alexander Rossi, you have earned the distinction of the longest gap between first and second appearances on my podcast. It's entirely my fault. I did look. 500 in 87 episodes do since, I get a trophy um you do you, you're some sort of award for that well <clears throat> um, i don't know if it's a good award but it's it's an award nonetheless well patience and persistence uh that is one for sure go. and i also just learned something today i don't know if you know it but i was thoroughly blown away uh apparently your number 27 napa honda carried my wife's sticker into victory lane on sunday i think our man the amazing rob edwards uh unbeknownst to me uh, applied some of the stickers i guess our man hinch uh handed some out in the uh driver's meeting but yeah i haven't even told her yet so uh, i can't wait to show her after we're done recording here so just want to say thanks Fantastic. man yeah sure all of our thoughts were, were with you guys james handed out the stickers in the driver's meeting which was very cool and very james like of him to do isn't it so before we get into racing and some little event that you kind of sort of owned last weekend, I love the fact that your podcast off track uh-huh. with yourself and Mr. Hinchcliffe just seems to be growing and doing good things. We've got some questions that are like way deep that I hope you will know what they're in reference to. How are you enjoying that kind of media thing in addition to being a race car driver? Um, I'm surprised it's growing considering the lack of capability that both James and I have at creating a um, radio show slash podcast slash whatever you want to call it. Um, but it just goes to show kind of the the depth and the passion from, from IndyCar fans and, and kind of how interested they are in, in hearing about us as, as drivers, but also people outside of, of the race car, which I think is something that um, you know, the whole IndyCar paddock kind of prides themselves on giving giving people some sort of inside look as to who we are as human beings because at the end of the day, um, when we're not driving race cars, our, our weeks are very much like, like everyone else's. So I think um, people get a kick out of that, and it's great that we're able to give that to them. It's amazing how I think social media earns a bad rap for justifiable reasons, a lot of folks saying mean and ugly things to one another and whatnot, but when I see uh, one of your episodes pop up or, or whomever's in IndyCar or road racing in general, just seems like there's a huge wave of positivity, like you mentioned. Just a lot of cool people who like to plug in, get to know folks a little bit better. So really happy. Yeah, I've been blown away with like how many people. It's cool because like after Connor and I did the Amazing Race, there was a lot of people that come up to me at the track and they'd be like, oh, loved you on the show or whatever. Now that's kind of died, and it's like, oh, I love your podcast of James. I'm like, really? That's that's great. I mean, I'm I'm happy to hear that. I'm super surprised, but but cool. Thanks for listening. You know, uh, a dollar a download. That's all we ask, right? I yes, mean, you yes. know, it, it, at a maximum. All right, really. and that's me paying people a dollar per download, but <laughs> for sure. All right. So when I sent out the call for questions, 
Good Lord, man. Uh, I'm also just really stoked to see how, you know, still relatively early in your IndyCar career, you've clearly connected with a lot of people because you're kind of at almost record level of the volume of questions that have come in. And I love the diversity that some are really cool in depth. Some are more fun. Uh, I did say, dear listeners, no real need to ask Alexander about his contractual situation in 2020 plans. That's going to be resolved behind the scenes. But I thought maybe we could open with a general one that might interest folks. And it's talking about your future. I know with our, our home state, Golden State Warriors, and Kevin Durant dealt with this all season long from reporters asking questions about his future as a free agent. Where will he go? And this is all while he's trying to make a run for the NBA Finals. Curious with you in a similar situation, uh, how you, if you can, can or willing to share, how you compartmentalize uh, your needs for both being locked in as a professional athlete, winning races, going for a title, and then these important things in the background, contracts, discussions, getting your future sorted out. Uh, I'm guessing keeping distractions to a minimum is maybe job number one. Yeah, yes, for sure. Um, so I, I think the easiest way to, to answer that is kind of go back to my previous life um, and career in Europe where, you know, for the better part of a decade, I was on a year-to-year contract. Um, there was really no sense of stability, um, paychecks or or salaries were not even something that was a consideration. It was all about negotiating down the number that the team that you were trying to drive for was going to be charging you. Um, so a lot of my career uh, was, was kind of based around uncertainty and, and kind of the unknown and going through the Christmas holiday um, and, and not having any type of kind of indication of what I was doing the, the following year. Um, and kind of finding out in, in February or even kind of March what car I was going to be driving and for who. So the fact that I've been kind of blessed to be in a position to where, you know, there's, there's conversations and, and, and stuff happening in like June, um, is something that I'm actually, it's, is almost relaxing in a way because mm. I, I know that, you know, aside from anything, God forbid, crazy happening, I'll be driving a race car next year. And that's something that I never had for for seven years while racing in Europe. You know, um, you're going to be in a good place next year, no matter what, which is, yeah, that's an amazing thing to be able to it, have. It, it's such a fortunate position to be in. I mean, I, I know I'm obviously very good friends with Connor um, and he's he's going through the uh, the stress of am I even going to drive anything next year and yeah. everything. So yes, it's it's stressful. Yes, you want to um, obviously go down the the right path and, and such. But at the end of the day, it's a uh, as my father would call it, it's it's a first class problem to have, <laughs> and to, there's no point getting too stressed about it. So that's part one of of, of the answer. And part two is I um, have a really strong team of people around me that I've had with me since the beginning, my father being one of them, who's kind of a, a, a manager slash guidance counselor, if you will, um, along with some, some other folks that have been with me since carding. And I have a lot of people around me that I can trust and can lean on for, for advice that I know is good. Um, which at the end of the day allows me to, to go just focus on, on driving the race car. And at the end of the day, 
you know, in this sport, you're only as good as your last race. So no matter how much people are excited about what you're doing or talking about what you're doing, um, you got to keep delivering results no matter what. So that's got to be at the forefront of, of your focus. And, and, um, yeah, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to have people around me that, that can handle most of the, the chaos. We're going to go ahead and start doing a hashtag breaking that Rossi is signed to drive Andretti's Indy Lights cars next year, just to really confuse the hell out of people. (laughs) Um, All right, let's get into a bunch of awesome questions. And again, I'll I'll get through them as quickly as I can. Uh, And I've consolidated a few. Some folks have asked similar things. Let's kick off with Dennis Dennis Zosak, who says, Alex, you've now put on two grade A butt whoopings this year in the IndyCar field, Long Beach and Road America. Can you explain what the difference was at Long Beach and Road America, maybe compared to every other circuit? Did you feel more comfortable in the car, the chassis setup, or were you just in the mother of all grooves on both <laughs> occasions? Um, so I, I don't know that, that I have an answer for you because it's, I mean, we'd do it every weekend if we could, right? Like it, it's not something that is just like, oh, we're going to decide to put all of our best stuff on this weekend. <laughs> Should we win this weekend? Up. Bye. Right, yes, exactly. I agree. So it's, I don't know. It, it's kind of goes falls into the, the the black art, black magic, whatever you want to call it, of what you know car vehicle dynamics are in a race car. And sometimes, um, you know, you get not only the car into an operating window, but you get the tire into an operating window. And both of those operating windows is something that I'm comfortable with, right? It's very easy to, not easy, but it's, it's, there's a lot of potential with the simulation software that we have and the, the resources that we have um, leading up to an event to get kind of in theory, what is the optimum setup? What is the setup that math says is going to be the fastest race car around the track with the tires that we're given and the, and the conditions, the ambient and track conditions surrounding that? But that doesn't always mean that I'm going to be comfortable driving it. So that's where you kind of are always in this balancing act. And, and, and we talk so much about the importance of the relationship with the driver and the engineer is because as much information as we're getting from a data perspective, even if I'm asking for something that maybe isn't in theory the fastest possible thing on the car, if I'm more comfortable driving it, it'll do a faster lap time. So I think both in Road America and Long Beach and honestly Indianapolis, you know, we found a car that, you know, I was just completely at one with and didn't have to think too much about driving it and, and kind of let it do the work for me and it ended up being fast. So, um, it was great. I love it. It's, I'd say you come around those days once a year. Um, we're, I feel very fortunate that we kind of got it twice this year for, for whatever reason, and obviously hope to, to have it happen again before the season ends in Laguna. I'm going to stick with this theme a little bit, have two related questions. One from Brian Smith. He says, uh, you said Alex, that your car on Sunday was probably the best you'd ever driven. He said he's curious what some of the other contenders were for that honor. And I guess maybe not specifically IndyCar, but just in general throughout your career, like, ooh, that was pretty amazing. Um, the, the, the car that I had at Phoenix last year mm. um, was exceptional. And had I not made the mistake in pit lane, I think we would have done the old Ryan hunter at Milwaukee and won by a lap <laughs> type thing. Um Outside of IndyCar, that's hard. Uh, I don't know that 
I could think of one to be perfectly honest with you. Um, you know, F1 cars, the, even the, the, uh, machines that I drove being in P19 and P20 most of the time that are, they're incredibly well balanced. Like they have enough people and money to make the setup pretty much optimized. Um, and the difference in lap time purely comes down to just the downforce and the grip that you have available to you. So, you know, I always refer to a Formula One car as, as a perfectly balanced race car. Um, so, you know, I guess kind of what I drove at Road America and Phoenix were pretty close to that in terms of, you know, the most optimum balance that, that one could hope for. Ross, he says, Caterham, best handling race car of all time. No, please, don't <laughs> run with su- that, folks. Don't run with that. You'd, you'd be surprised. Those things were, were pretty good. They, sure. You'd come in, you'd come in, and they'd be like, what's the balance? I'm like, uh, I mean, it's pretty good, man, to be honest with you. I don't have much to say. <laughs> we're just like 12 miles an hour down in that corner. <laughs> <laughs> Could you find me seven more seconds? Because I'm pretty happy. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> good Lord. Well, we're, we're going to go in the opposite direction here with our okay. pal Carlos Villalobos, who always sends in fun questions. He says, if Sunday's car was the best you've ever driven, what's been the worst? Um, I don't, I try and block those memories out of my mind, yeah. to be honest. I think um, I drove a – it was a GP2 race in Bahrain, and it was – for the Caterham GP2 team, and this was in 2013. And I think by the end of the race, I was like eight and a half seconds off Jeez. just because they used the tires that much. Um, the funny part about that race was Connor was in it with me, and he was like nine seconds off. So like we were fighting <laughs> in the back, like literally just going slower than probably what an S3 car could have done around there and um fighting for like p18 i think yeah no you're gonna be last no you're gonna be last exactly oh lord uh let's see tom anderson asks what's it like to be so dominant on a race weekend uh and when you get towards the end of the race as you did at road america is it difficult at all to maintain your focus when you're leading so easily instead of having to chase someone uh no no because i mean i think especially in IndyCar racing, like you never know what, what can happen that potentially, you know, moves the order around and, and such. So you, you have to be pushing every lap to just try and build gaps as much as you can, um, regardless of the position that you're in. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was the same for me, obviously the last two laps when I was in lap traffic, I kind of just, you know, let it go. And I think I was like a second off the pace, but up until that point, you know, you're pushing every lap because you you really don't know um, if it could all get turned on its head at some point somehow. Let's go to Bo Blaylock, who wonders, how did you celebrate such a dominant victory with your team after the race and the photo shoots were done? Uh, I, I didn't. I um, Yeah, because by the time you finish the, the kind of the photo shoot in, in, in the winter circle, do the press conference, and then you have an hour-long satellite media tour. Most of the team was gone. So, yeah, um, yeah. I drove to Chicago that night and had a pizza and beer with my girlfriend and went to sleep. So there you go. <laughs> you too can live the high and exciting life of a race car driver. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, why don't we go to Steven Straub? Great question here, Steve. He says, Alex, having worked with Brian Herta and now being teammates with Colton Herta, what similarities and differences do you notice between father and son Herta? 
Um, they're, they're just utter calmness. Like, you know, I obviously didn't ever see Brian in, in a behind the wheel of a race car, but I would imagine, you know, the characteristics don't change that much in dealing with him in, in high stress situations when he was, um, my strategist in 2016, like, you know, just everything, um, nothing really seemed to phase him that much regardless of, of how bad it theoretically was getting. And, and I think the same is can be said for Colton, um, regardless of the challenge, regardless of whether he's been there before, done it or whatever. Um, you know, he just kind of takes it in the same beat and, and, and executes at a really high level. So I think that, you know, they're very similar in, in that respect. They are. If you're from California, you'd probably know the reference, but they are so Southern California chill. Uh, it's just, that is who they are. And I love it. Uh, it, it is fun though, to see when Colton gets a little pissed, he reminds me of his dad. Totally. His dad might seem like Mr. Professor working in the library all day. Everything's super quiet, but yeah, Brian could throw a wobbly pretty darn good back in the day when he felt it was, uh, was right. Go to, uh, Eric Franklin next has a couple of nice comments. says, Marshall, thanks for the tip on watching the, uh, Mazda global MX five cup, highly entertaining racing this weekend. I think a lot of folks just love having those little things beaten up on each other as a support act to IndyCar. He says, Alex, he sat with Cody's parents in turn five during qualifying in the race. And he said, you've created a couple of advocates for all IndyCar uh, within them. And just thought that was a great comment from Eric, because I think over the weekend, I also saw a photo with our friend Ryan Eversley, and not only dinner with racers podcast, but, uh, you know, fellow Honda performance development driver, uh, affiliate and whatnot. And just seems like you've made a really amazing connection, uh, here, which I don't know, man, among the many things you do in and out of the car, uh, I have to imagine you take pride in the ability to build some meaningful little friendships, even with young kids. Yeah, for sure. I think that again, I mean, kind of, what I alluded to at the beginning of the show when we talked about the podcast is, you know, IndyCar gives us as drivers an opportunity to, um, you know, just be human beings. And I think, you know, from what I came from in, in Europe and in different series and such, that's not so much the case. And you're very much, you know, kind of held to a corporate message that you're trying to get across. And, you know, there, there's pros and cons to both, right. At the end of the day, um, you know, there's a time and place for that. But I think the fact that, that first of all, fans have access to so much in IndyCar um, is such an amazing thing. And it would be a shame for them to just have access and see cars and not necessarily get to, you know, meet the drivers or at least get a photo with them or whatever. So, you know, I think all of us take a little bit of pride in that um, just because I think it's what separates us and differentiates IndyCar from, from all the other series on, on the planet. So this next question from Kevin Deering, you got from a couple people in a variety of ways, and I'll ask the question, then pose my own theory. He says to Alex, how much money would it take to get you to shave on race day? I mean, I shave when it gets uncomfortable, so probably not a lot of money. It's not like a... (laughs) 
superstition thing. It's more of a laziness thing. So, I mean, 10 bucks probably. 10 bucks. But I, but I think yeah. it speaks to, I don't, do you think it's an old timey thing of, well, if you're serious and professional, you'll be clean shaven. And if you don't, you're kind of a hippie and you're not professional. I'm not saying Kevin's alluding to that, but there were a few other questions that kind of went along those lines of, Hey kid, you know, clean up your face. If you're going to be in victory lane, I'm like, um, well, I think it's 2019. So I think a lot of things are accepted now that maybe the 50 plus year olds that are asking that question, it wasn't accepted back then. Women are in the pits uh, now. Hey, have you seen? Right. I mean, it's, it's called progression. Um, but yes, I think there's a time and a place to shave. Um, but I also think that driving a race car, I don't really think that's, that's on the top of a lot of people's minds. However, that being said, when I did the uh, sports car stuff for Accurate Team Penske, I did shave, not because I was told to, but just because there's, I didn't know. I, I mean, I never was told by anyone there that that's what you do, but I was just, you know, that's just something you know that that's what you do. And yeah, it's not a big deal. I could just know? see Roger like pulling you as you're about to climb in for your first stint, pulling you back, <laughs> handing you a razor and some shaving cream. <laughs> a straight razor. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, son. Uh, um, that's, that's funny. But yeah, teach their own, I suppose. I just use the old Rodney Dangerfield line of, you know, I wear a beard because it breaks up the monotony of my face. So I have a pretty, pretty easy answer there. You got a couple folks asking questions along this theme, and it's if you had the offer at the end of the IndyCar season, knowing that there's still a handful of Formula One races, is that something you would consider? Do you think about that at all? Because it seems like, and I think due to the fact that here you are again contending for an IndyCar championship, Showing folks you're a badass. I think you got a lot of IndyCar fans who are like, hey, let's get him back to F1 in a good car so we can show him that he can run up front there too. Uh, nah, I don't really care, to be honest. I'm, I'm past that point in my life. I mean, obviously, if Mercedes-Benz or Ferrari called, I mean, that would probably be a different conversation. But I also think I have a better chance of winning the Mega Millions and being able to go buy a seat there anyways. Ooh, so, I like that. I mean, like, it's it's... We can all talk about unicorns and stuff all we want, but at the end of the day, <laughs> that's not going to happen. I know that's not going to happen. And so, yes, no, I'm not. I don't really have any interest. So the next question here from John Richter, I, again, I, I don't know if there's an answer in the universe to this, but I would I enjoy his desire wanting to see it. He's asking if there's anything from your background coupled with the crazy Jeremy Millis's background that make the two of you a lethal combo? Um, I mean, I think we both enjoy looking at weird things on the internet, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Dark Web Rossi coming right, to a racetrack like, near you? I mean, that not, bad not like, or no? Not like, this, not like illegal things, okay. but like just, just things that are you know humorous that some people might find offensive. You know, we get a kick out of sending that to each other. But Beyond that, I don't, I don't know a whole lot about Jeremy's personal life other than he loves building and flying airplanes, which I can't comprehend because um, I, I just, I, I would never have enough trust in my ability to build something that is supposed to take off into the sky, and me depend on that for my well-being and safety. So um, he loves it, and that's great for him. And uh, yeah. He might have been the strangest 
crew member I ever worked with when he he was uh, I think it was his first year as an IndyCar mechanic in 2000, which is one of my final years. Okay. And I love the guy. We were roommates on the road. I don't know for however many times. Yeah. He's he is fr- truly from a different planet. But that's the reason I love him the most. And I'm not being oh, mean. he's to, the best. Yeah. yeah. To anyone else in IndyCar, it's just, you know, there's a lot of kind of red-blooded male, you know, vibe going on. And that's cool. Jeremy's just from a different planet. So I just yeah. immediately love the guy. And it's been so fun seeing him, uh, you know, you guys especially, just making this great combo. Um, and he always disputes uh, how this happened, at least. But I never let him forget that he did share. I think I was sick. And he told me in the room that he was 18 years old before he actually saw his first black person in real life. And I just, it's one of those things where it's the most Jeremy Millis comment ever, but you kind of don't doubt it. You go, yeah, that kind of the strangest thing. I I don't doubt it at all. Yeah. I mean, Ohio boy. Yeah. Anyways, um, we're just going (laughs) to leave it there because I don't know where to take things. Um, Fun question here. Something actually, I think it was our, the first thing we ever did together. Uh, comes in from uh, Twitter screen names are the best. A guy in a grumpy bear suit asks question for Alex, which is more fun to drive around Circuit of the Americas, the current IndyCar or the Lotus Forty Nine? Um, current IndyCar for sure. Um, the the Lotus Forty Nine wasn't fun. It was surprising and it was cool to be able to um, kind of say I drove it and get a preview. I guess it wouldn't be a preview. A look back at history. Um, the gearbox was not friendly, was, which really ruined, terrifying. I think, things. The whole thing was horrible. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't enjoy. I didn't enjoy it at all. Um, so yeah, well, that's the. I look. It was like <laughs> freezing cold, no grip. The gearbox yeah. is fighting you every step of the way. You were. It was definite trooper time. That impressed me because I probably would have stepped out after a few laps. Like, nope, call someone else. Yeah. I ain't doing it. All right, let's go to a couple questions here that are similar. Thomas Gross and Tim Reagan. Tom says, uh, Alex, now that you've competed at the Baja and the Rolex and the 8500, what other races are on your bucket list? And Tim says, uh, has a question about, would you like to do, I don't know, maybe going up Pikes Peak or something else? So I guess folks love seeing the diversity of your racing interests and want to know if you want to do more. Yeah, Um I don't know that I have an interest in Pikes Peak just because I don't really know a whole lot about it. Um, so, yeah, I'll leave it at that. I would love to do uh, a V8 supercar race at one point. I know, like, James and Marco did kind of, I don't know, five or six years ago, like some celebrity race over there. Yeah, the Gold Coast like, 600 on uh, at Surface Paradise. There you go. So they said they loved it, and it was an awesome experience. And... um yeah, I only kind of spent like three or four days in Australia when I was there as a reserve driver for, for Caterham. So it's kind of a country on, on my bucket list. So, yeah, I'd say that's that would be cool if the opportunity presented itself one day. And then um, I'd love to do a cup race at some point. I don't care where. I'd just love to do one just to see what it's like. That's awesome. Yeah. Go to uh, Philip Schmitz who says, when you look back when you were racing in GP2, did you think that all of this would be possible for you in IndyCar? Was it even an option, or was Formula One the main target at the time? And I know you've been asked this a thousand times, but I figure Phillips doesn't. Philip doesn't know, so why don't we tell him? 
Sure. Um, so no, I mean, I IndyCar was was never really on my radar um, at all, and so no, I guess it's the simple answer. Uh, I didn't imagine that I would be here. Obviously, I was hoping to, you know, get to a full time status in in F one, and and we were really close to that happening in, in 2016 and it was all supposed to happen and um, it didn't and it's a very cliched thing to say but it was pretty remarkable at how quickly um, the door to, to drive for Andretti Autosport opened after the the Manor F1 team door closed and it was um, it was it was amazing I mean it was something that you know you, you got to think that you know, the good Lord probably played a, played a role in that because, you know, I hadn't spoken to Michael in over a year um, since I was considering coming to IndyCar in 2015. I hadn't even, wasn't even aware that the fourth car was, was something that he was considering. And, um, yeah, he reached out at, at really the same time. It all went to crap over, over in England, so it was uh, pretty amazing. Speaking of the good Lord, this next question, I, I really appreciate John Hollinger sending in. He says, Alexander, I remember reading years ago where the uh, where Oral Hershiser, the great L.A. Dodgers pitchers, pitcher of the late 80s and 90s, who was known for his fierce competitiveness, said that his faith and competitiveness were intrinsically linked, that because he was playing for something larger than himself, um, and he said his faith commanded that level of intensity, you said Tim Tebow recently said similar things, and you've touched on your faith before, but he says he's curious how your faith is linked with the, quote, red mist that we saw at Indy or any of the intense frustration you've dealt with with that string of second-place finishes. Are they connected, not related? What, does, uh, what role does your faith play in your approach to driving and competing? Um, that's a great question. And I wish that I could say that they were linked because that's a very noble thing. Um, and if that's true for Tim and the other person that you talked about, who I have not, never heard of before, no worries. That's, um, that's amazing. Um, but no, that's I wouldn't say those are together. I would say that you know the my faith has has allowed me to kind of through dark times or difficult times or whatever, and, and being uncompetitive or the unknowns as to why things aren't going the way you'd expect um, has kind of allowed me to, to still be motivated and focus. Cause you know, I, I am a firm believer of there's kind of always a, a bigger plan um, and that there's a higher power looking, looking after all of us. Um, but no, I, I don't think on the day to day when I get in the race car, that's something that is at the forefront of my mind from a um, approach standpoint, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I, this is an element of, of your career and just overall being that I've appreciated as well. I mean, I've never seen you or heard of you, you know, treating your faith like the big ATM in the sky. Hey, could you make that car fall off the track and just clear the path for me to win? You know, there's a strong work ethic that, at least from the outside, I, I have observed that seems to be the core component of what you do. And if your faith is needed, it seems like that's, you know, been more... Uh, maybe outside the car, uh, something that imbibes and imbues you as needed. Correct. I think that's a good way of putting it. Oh, Leave it to the guy that uh, writes words for a living to, to explain that well. Me word right. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Eric Cantrell, who says, Alex, can the perfect lap at Indy be imagined, 
or would you recognize it while you were driving? Um, okay. Uh, I wish all these were super easy. Hey, you what's know, your favorite it, color? It, this, this isn't hard. I just, I, I don't want to answer this without, I don't want to answer it and ruin the mystique of Indianapolis. So, um, let me just say that without answering it directly, um, that uh, m- most of the performance that comes from, you know, let's say qualifying at Indianapolis, for example, a lot of that's in the car and it's just inherently it's either there or it isn't. Um, and it's very difficult to overcome, you know, say a car that just intrinsically is half a mile an hour slower than another one. Like there's, there's nothing that you as a driver are going to be able to do to compensate for that. So I hope that kind of alludes to a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think but, it's also fair to say, this is obviously, you know, decades before your first Indy 500, and um, Eric may or may not know this, but the times have changed to where when we now have Spectelar DW12, fire, a single tire supplier in Firestone, which makes amazing products, two engine suppliers whose product is within a, you know, a fraction of a percent of being identical. We're in a different era currently, hopefully, maybe it'll it'll change, but if we think, quote, back in the day, 70s, 80s, 90s, the Mario Andretti's, the Rick Mears, they weren't flat every lap. They were lifting right. into all the corners and their true driver skill, setup capabilities. I don't know if I should say factored more, but they were demonstrated more because there was the vehicle was doing less of the work. And Correct. so in those scenarios, I think if we were talk, to speak with the Rick Mears, he could absolutely describe what a perfect lap would be like because he's thinking about his work on the steering wheel and the pedals first and foremost, not the car being kind of sort of on rails, even if you're a half second off or a half mile an hour off. Yeah, correct. And and I think that's a a good way of putting it. I mean, qualifying at Indianapolis more than anything requires bravery. Um, But the, the true like skill and capability of the drivers, I think really comes out when it comes to, to race day and dealing with, with traffic and such. Let's go to Chris Wright, who asks, Alex, how similar or different are the setups on the cars in the Andretti stable for a typical road course? And he wonders if there's anything you prefer in a general setup standpoint that might be different from your teammates, which maybe also could speak to whether, you know, you could do the proverbial bolt-on Hunter Ray or Marco setup if need be, or if your needs tend to be a different enough to where that's not necessarily an option. Um, so I would, I mean, we, we all start kind of the same. And I think that's, that's one thing about Andretti. I mean, we talk a lot about how, you know, we work, even though it's four cars, we are one team and the, the share of information and the assistance that not only the engineers provide to, to each other, but also the drivers provide to each other. I mean, I'll sit down and look at video with Ryan or, or Zach and kind of explain what I'm doing or ask what they're doing. And, and it's a completely open book. And the view of that is if one car gets better, the other three will follow suit. And I think there's a lot of merit in that. And um, in order for that to really make sense, you all have to have a baseline that you kind of start from. Otherwise, you could be giving you know false information that you know another driver might not be able to even make happen in the car setup that they have. Now, 
as practice sessions go on and, and the weekend goes by, there are kind of independent paths that are that are made. Um, but there's always kind of a return to home button, if that makes sense. Yeah. So at the end of the day, yes, I think all four of our cars are a little bit different, but they never get so different that, say, for example, you go through Saturday qualifying and you're all of a sudden lost that you can't then put on a car one of your teammates car and it be like a complete you know you're throwing the kitchen sink at it right it's not going to be a completely different race car to drive and it'll be slightly different but it's not going to be completely different so i think that you know we we pride ourselves on that um indianapolis is different because you have so long that you know you get pretty far down x path and once you get kind of to to carb day, you're not going to be bailing on that. But when it's only a two or three day weekend, um, you know, we're all, we're all pretty much similar. The next question here just reminds me that, man, I wish folks had, didn't have good memories because they remember some of the things I say. And apparently you say in Hinch as well, Brett Ross says, Alex, you and Marshall both lost bets to James Hinchcliffe on the NBA finals. Uh, uh, I'm going to have to pay mine at Laguna, uh, by donating blood. Uh, so fair enough. Um, Brett asks, did you ever wear the Raptors hat at Indy? Any idea on a bet you can win with him? How about who can eat the most hot dogs in one minute? And he closes by saying, I really enjoy, uh, he says on track with Hinch and Rossi, which maybe that's a new one I've missed, but the off track as well, I think is uh, pretty darn good too. Um, okay. So no, I didn't wear the hat because I'm not going to disrespect my country like that. See, um, that's why we love Alexander Rossi boys and girls Two, Uh, I could definitely, I could eat more hot dogs, but he could eat more pizza in a minute. And three, um, if he is creating another podcast called on track without me, I'm going to be pretty pissed. <laughs> It's, I believe, Valentino Rossi, so it might be really entertaining, but oh man, maybe reaching, maybe reaching things like high in the cupboard. I mean, that's one you could win pretty damn easily. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, actually, maybe that's something we need. I need our listeners to come up with easy, not easy, but things that you're like, come on, Alex is going to beat Hinch in this every time. So give us some suggestions. Uh, Greg Fetchick asks. Alex, at what point was there a, was there a specific point where you said to yourself, you know, I really like this IndyCar stuff. I might want to stay here a while. So I guess, was there a specific aha moment or was it more of a general, uh, occurrence at some point? Um, I would say the first moment was really St. Pete in 2016, um, I loved every minute about that race weekend. I hated the racetrack at the time. My car was terrible. But despite all that, I had had some of the most fun behind the wheel that I had had in, I mean, at the time, probably six or seven years. Wow. And so that was like, okay, this is, this is what I fell in love with. This is kind of what I've been missing for so long. Yeah, we finished a lap down. Yeah, it was a struggle, but this is awesome. Um, and then I think the next one was just the month of May. I mean, I had never been to a 500 before, um, as people know, and, and my knowledge of that race was zero and I didn't understand the, um, 
the significance of it really through that whole first year, just because how could you, right? And so, um, but, but despite that, I loved it. And, and I tell people that of the two things I remember most about the Indy 500 in 2016 was obviously one winning, but then the second one was standing on the grid um, at 11.50 when the national anthem and the flyover and oh. back home again all happened. And that was, for me, that was prior, even prior to the race starting, that was one of the coolest moments of my career. And then obviously the icing on the cake was was the end result. But even if I hadn't a won, I think that, that the emotion and the feeling would have still been the same. I love it. All right, we're rounding turn four here, headed toward, towards a start-finish line here in the checkered flag, hopefully, for some really bad little analogies. Uh, let's see. Brandon Smith says, Alex, right after you pulled into victory lane at Road America, I noticed what appeared to be a PR representative lean into your cockpit while quickly flipping through a small notepad with names of some of your sponsors written on each page. Is this simply to help you remember what sponsors to mention on the air during your celebratory interview, or is there some other reason for that? Um, people are really observant, and it's concerning, <laughs> but that's fine. Um, and let's just say there's some other reason for that, and I'll leave it at that. Oh, good Lord. Well. Sorry. No, no. <laughs> well, but also, of course, if folks are observant, they're now going to be badgering you with answering that question uh, in future podcasts. But it's all good. Probably, yes. So I had this some guy named Joseph Newgarden on the show about two weeks ago. And oh one of our listeners, I know, it's a bad, another bad decision made by me. Um, and one of our listeners asked, basically, is trying to help drum up a rivalry, a heated rivalry between the two of you. So he said, hey, could you, you know, just say some mean stuff about Rossi and he did and did his best. And of course, you know, kid from the South raised well manner. So, you know, it was an okay attempt, but it wasn't, he didn't stick the landing. So Matthew Lewis says new garden got his jab in at you a couple weeks ago. A any thoughts on it? getting a bad? I, I see. I hate to say this. I don't remember, which maybe speaks to the fact that it wasn't as strong as I thought it should have been. But anyways, okay. You know, you want to take a crack at, you know, putting Newgarden in his place? Uh, not really. <laughs> I mean, his, his jawline is too strong. Um, yeah. And his neck is too big. So, I mean, other than that, he's pretty much. Rossi um, says Newgarden has misshapen head. Now that, see, that's a good one right there. Oh, Lord. Um and then Jamine Tuttle, who always sends in awesome questions, says, Alex, any chance you and Joseph could it get into a good pit lane brawl? Um, no. No, damn it. Absolutely not. I'm failing I on mean, every level here. I um, don't. That, that's the thing. Like, I don't. I, I know people, like, wanted this last year, but, like, Rob was, is one of my really good friends. Um, so that was never going to happen. And, like, that's also not me. Because, like, people criticize me. Not criticize me. Maybe that. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. But they observe. They're like, I don't say a lot, or I don't have a lot of emotions when I win, or I don't get excited. But like, the same thing applies for the other angle. Like, why would I just be angry all the time? Right? Like that doesn't make sense either. So if I have subdued emotions for good things, why would they expect the opposite? Here's the thing folks don't know. When you moved to Indianapolis, one of the first things you did was start an underground Rossi's Fight Club. 
So like right. all like two a.m. You know, parking lots. You're just pummeling the hell out of people. So folks don't even know you have. But anyways, we'll we'll say that's not done at the racetrack. All exactly. kidding aside, let me stick with this though because it is seems to be it does seem to be bubbling up a little bit. Last year's championship ended up being more or less a Dixon versus Rossi thing. So uh-huh. far this year, it's been pretty much the two American guys on the rise. Uh, you and Joseph really being, it seems like, week by week locked in, going for you know first, second, third, something. Do you are you able to appreciate that just as an American, knowing that this isn't something that IndyCar has had as often as maybe some would like? One hundred percent, and I think it's it's great for for the series. I think it's super timely with obviously having our new partnership with NBC. Um, I think it's wonderful, and I'm really happy to, to kind of be one of those guys um, that's the American representation fighting for it. And, yeah, I mean, we all love Scott. We all know that he's the best that's ever done it and probably the best that's ever going to do it. And yes, 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 yes. But he's not American, right? So, like, as much as, as we love that and we I love watching him drive and we all um, kind of wait to see what he's going to accomplish – you know, I think that, you know, Americans are very patriotic people and, and passionate about the red, white, and blue. And I think it's cool that, you know, there's there's American guys that, that are fighting for it. And obviously, Joseph already won a championship. Um, but I think that year he was competing against Scott as well. Um, and then when Ryan won in 2012, he was competing against Will. So there hasn't really been a, an American versus American battle in a while. And it's it's pretty awesome. I also love the fact that you're driving for someone in Michael Andretti, who if I'm thinking of great American rivals rivalries, his with Alan Sir Jr. set the bar pretty darn high. So I'm not saying you and Joseph are, are there yet, but I, at least as someone who wants to write about it, hopes that's what we get to in the future. We're like, cool, this, this is going to be badass for years to come. That I am fairly confident in. Well, as long as we keep winning races, hopefully that'll be the case. See? It's all Millis's fault if you don't. Uh, let's go to Howard exactly. Bennett. He says, hey, could you ask Alexander to talk about next year's aero screen? Uh, have you had any mm. interaction with it directly? Any concerns about visibility, positive vibes, improved safety? He also wonders if we could have any visor up driving times on some of the slower courses with it. Uh, no, <laughs> to the second part of that. Absolutely not. <laughs> and... Uh, I don't want this to come across as cavalier or um, uninterested, but I, I frankly don't care either way because at the end of the day, I'm not going to be the one making the decision on it. And it's going to be the same for everyone. So I I mean it when I say that I, I trust what IndyCar does in terms of um, the research that they do and the innovation that they come up with or have come up with in the past and are continuing to do so. And I, I do truly believe that they're always keeping us um, at the center of their mind in terms of safety. So um, I don't have an opinion. If it's on, great. If it's not on, also don't care. I'm still going to drive the race car as fast as possible. Amen. Next one here is from Paul Ferreira. And if we're, I guess we're pronouncing it in Portuguese, it'd be Paul Ferreira. Uh, he <laughs> asks, which previous teammate um, – that you have been with outside of IndyCar, would you love to see come over and run in IndyCar? 
Uh, well, he already kind of did. Jordan King. So Jordan was my teammate in, in GP2 in 2015. Um, one of my really good friends. Uh, good dude. Yeah. I mean, awesome guy. Great, great driver. Um, we won't hold it against him that he's severely British, but, but that's okay. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, he, he loved it. He obviously, he, he can't be here this year because the sport is, is, is a, as much of a business as anything else. But, um, yeah, no, he's, he, he really enjoyed his time over here. He thought the Indy 500 was the coolest thing he's ever done as most guys do. And, um, I think we'll see him back here pretty soon. I saw someone tweet something not very nice yesterday in reaction to Pato Award announcing he was going to be doing the F2 race uh, this weekend where he will be teammates with Jordan. And someone said, hey, maybe you could ask your teammate what it's like to compete in the Indy 500. I'm like, wow, that's really not nice. Wow. But then it also reminded me I'd also kind of forgotten that Jordan was back um, doing F2. So that means nothing. It just popped into my head. Uh, let's go People to Ed. are mean. Yeah, well, again, the internet has its its moments. Uh, Ed Berg asked something that you just touched on a little bit, but maybe uh, this is another introspective area. He says, when you first came into the series, it seemed like you were a little bit reserved. He said, now it seems like you're one of the more forward media personalities in the paddock. He's curious what's changed. See, I, I disagree with that. Um, yes, I was... Um, but how do I put this? I, I was more kind of of the European mentality of, of, of not overstating kind of things that were happening each weekend just because, you know, I was kind of trained in an area where the, the less you said, the better. But I also think that prior to the 500, no one really cared about what I was doing or who I was. Mm. So like now, you know, because I've been in the series a while and, you know, the team's taken a big step forward and I've gotten better and we have Napa Auto Parts on board and all of these things. There's more attention. I have an onboard camera now. So, like, people care. But I, I, I really think that also they didn't see a lot of me because I, no one asked. Because why would they prior to May of 2016 type thing? So I, I think it's a little bit of a, an assumption that's based on not – understanding the full picture less hatred for people in indycar is the real answer ed um no i mean <laughs> kidding aside uh, i this is a super generalism but every year older that i get i become more comfortable with people and things and being more open and whatnot i'm not saying that's the case for you but i do know that as one tends to get older matures a little bit more um enough folks that i've known have seemed to you know, open themselves up a little bit more, or at least be more comfortable doing that. So I'm not saying that has been your journey, but it definitely looks like for me from the outside, like you just seem comfortable in your shoes and in IndyCar today and have been for a little while. So maybe that's something Ed's recognizing. Fair enough. All right. Down to our last couple. We're going to Jordan Darwin. And I'm glad that we finally got a real proper sports car question. He says, Alex, how has your experience been with the Acura Team Penske DPI? And also, is there anything about the Acura ARX 05 DPI you would love to have in IndyCar? Um, it has an onboard starter, which is great. Um, so that would be cool to have in an IndyCar in case you do spin. You can not be out of the race pretty much. 
Um, but it was, a, it was, it's, it's been awesome. I, I did the 24 hours Daytona in 2014, but it was in the Delta wing, which, uh, <laughs> isn't really a race car. In the, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it, that, I, I don't even count that as participating in Daytona, it, to be honest. It had a P so, sticker on the side, which I assume meant phallic. Might have been prototype. I'm not sure. Yes. You spell pal- phallic PH, right. So um, it, it's it been great. And, and I learned so much about endurance racing that I thought I understood but didn't truly understand until I got to work with with Accurate Team Penske and, and those boys and 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 Dane and Ricky especially, um, considering their immense kind of sports car background and careers. But it was really strange but also kind of cool for me to go through a race weekend where you're not it, – it's, it's very selfless. Um, and there was times that I enjoyed that and times where I absolutely hated it. But you'd go through – like we had a two-day test at Sebring. And um, like I'd, I'd find these – two changes in my kind of five runs that I got that I loved. And then Elliot would get in and be like, Nope, not interested. And be like, <laughs> Oh, okay, Damn cool. All, uh, all right. So now I'm just going to go like four tenths lower. And they're like, well, yeah. And it's like, oh, okay. So like that, that was, that took some getting used to, but then when you get into the race, you realize why it all kind of doesn't matter because you're not, you're not looking for two or three tenths anymore. You're looking for a lap time average over, I mean, your stint could be two to three and a half hours, right? And you do that three or four times. And the challenge of, of building this car maybe wasn't ultimately the fastest, but it was something that three different drivers were comfortable with. Um, it was really cool. And, and the engineering meetings took a very different path than, than what I was used to. And, and uh, I learned a lot from it. So, um, yeah, look forward to the next one. Well, having seen you on your Le Mans debut in a P2 car, having seen you at Daytona, as you mentioned, in the Delta Wing, I was really stoked to see you in a, I guess, call it a proper uh, prototype exactly. with the AirX05. Yeah. And you, just again, observing and looking at lap times and such from the outside, it looked like you were doing some pretty damn good business inside the car. So, again, I'm hoping uh, you can keep doing that and having fun if uh, that's something you want to do. For sure. And the other thing was, it was like, it was nice to be able to go to an event of that magnitude and know that you're fighting for an overall win, right? Like class wins are great, but it's also just that it's, it's a class win. Let me ask your thought on this real quick while we're on this. So I've been telling folks, I think I've written a couple articles that, Hey, if anyone needs a driver that isn't currently an Indy car, don't forget sports cars. And I'm not saying we want them to step out of Rogers, uh, Acura's, but Ricky Taylor, Dane Cameron, I mean, am I crazy in saying that while they might, they have no oval experience, but if someone needed a driver for, to fill in on a road course or whatever else, I mean, these guys are pretty damn good. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, without a doubt, um, there's not much more to say that they would, both of them, you know, would get into it and, and be up to speed right away. No doubt about it. All right, so we're going to close on two types of questions. First are on food, and then the last okay. ones are podcast-related because I figured let's close my podcast talking about yours. Uh, so Perfect. Keith Lee says, what is your favorite place for brunch in Indy, 
And then Nicholas Sylvain, and I don't know, maybe this is coming out of your podcast as well. Maybe you're constantly giving uh, food tips. What's your favorite restaurant in the U.S. and why? And he says bonus points if it's near an IndyCar race. Okay. Um, <laughs> favorite place for brunch in Indianapolis is, without a doubt, James's house. Um, so if you can get a reservation there, I highly recommend it. Smart. Um, hit him up on the DMs and yeah. Are you still kind of cleaning up the place and organizing things when you show up? Or? Well, I, don't, I mean, yeah. I mean, he just got it remodeled, so it's pretty clean and spotless. So I don't have to do a whole lot of work there. But um, yeah, for sure. You know, when, when there's people over and they don't do the dishes, I make sure I take care of it for them because it's a problem I have. You're it's a good house guest. Yeah, I try. Um, and then favorite restaurant in the United States uh, is kind of close. It's in Manhattan, so you could fly into LaGuardia on your way to Pocono and stop there. Uh, it's called Il Buco, and it is a Italian restaurant on the lower east side, I want to say, of New York City. I was so hoping you were going to say Chuck E. Cheese or Applebee's and just have people freaking out here. That would have been hilarious, but that's probably what something folks would expect from my fat behind. Um, I mean, I do, I do like Applebee's, but I wouldn't say it's my favorite restaurant in the United States. Nor should any human being with any small amount of respect. Um, all right, let's close with a couple of uh, fun podcasty off-track with Hinch and Rossi questions. Chris Hoffman says... Alex, what's the story behind Tim Durham's nickname, Thim? Um, Well, again, we were all at James' house, and a part of our friend group here in Indy is uh, Marissa Andretti, who has been friends with James for a long time, and Tim Durham, and the whole group that I was fortunate enough to, to get included into. And she just started referring to him as Thim, and he really, really disliked it. Um, so when we started this podcast, the three of us, we just immediately started referring to him as the name that he most despised. So there you go. As you should, as yes. you should, uh, Jeremy Erickson says, great clinic you put on at road America. He says, was this win similar to beating Thim in Mario Kart? Um, no, cause I beat Thim in Mario Kart all the time. I don't win IndyCar races all the time. So, um, Road America was definitely cooler. All right, so we're going to close on a question that is just so damn random. I hope you're going to save me on this because it seems like it might be off track with Hinch and Rossi related, if not. Or just uh, a complete prank. Well, yeah, one of the two. Uh, Karen Hollenbeck asks, for Alex, why do they keep tagging Diane Keaton in the posts about their dog Brunner and his new puppy sister? Also, will little sister pup keep the name Strudel? Save me here, please. I don't know what you're talking about, man. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Ah! um, uh, Okay, well, uh, the new puppy's name is Diane Keaton, so that's why. Okay. So if if this lady, I guess, had been a little more thorough, she would realize that, and they would answer all of her following questions. Okay. Uh, so, thank goodness. I just the, it was, I yeah. thought it was this or a mental patient was tweeting in no. questions for my show. So, oh, Lord. Yes, yes, I've named a dog Diane Keaton because 
why not should i ask why was there a specific movie where like you, i mean how's no, this i heard i just think it's funny like you're yelling across the park or yelling at her not to do something that she's doing and it's just really funny i love dogs with human names um not that brunner is a human name brunner is a made-up word but uh yeah why not i always like the comedian Stephen wright's line about he's gonna name his next dog his next dog stay so he'd just be yelling come here stay come here stay and confuse the hell out of it that might have been a really cruel joke though um all right i have face planted to end this interview which is kind of the norm but nonetheless thanks for taking some time my man not only did i really enjoy this but i hope folks did as well and thanks to everybody who sent in a bunch of awesome questions and uh i'm gonna do my best to not go 587 (laughs) podcasts before uh, we have you on next so thanks again alex and seriously man congratulations for just kicking a lot of ass and showing folks that we really really are fortunate to have you here in indycar i appreciate it man thank you look forward to to the next one augie paps i'm super happy we have you making your first appearance on the good old week in indycar i figure those who really follow the road to indy know your team know your story coming off of road america having won around there with a young kid an antipodian star i figure we'll get to that stuff in just a minute but for those who maybe don't know the augie pabst story or your family story maybe tell us how you know this is a a generational thing for you not just a, a next generation thing thanks marshall i appreciate you having us on um so yeah my my father who a lot of a lot of people have heard of um he drove in the sports car arena back in the late 50s early 60s um drove for some factory teams some big teams and had good success uh, kind of well known for driving the Meisterbrough Scarab um he retired from racing in the mid 60s and um I came along in the early 70s and basically we were spending lots of time at the racetrack just as spectators and me as a young kid and kind of just grew up hanging on the fences. And later, later on in 83, he went back to racing for fun. And so I kind of got, you know, just exposed to it basically throughout my whole life and did some karting as a kid, not super seriously, um, but did enjoy it. Was interested to drive cars eventually Back in those days, you had to be 18 to get your SCCA license. Uh, unlike the, I think, I don't know, 14 or 13 it is now. Um, so, 92, uh, went to Skip Barber, got my, uh, you know, certificate there. Went and did a SCCA driver school in a spec racer, and went through the spec racer category. Did some national racing, SCCA level. Um, did a few years in the Dodge Shelby Pro Series in the spec Shelby Can Am car. The Can Hams, um, I love them. I built one of them. I, I, I yeah, it might have been the low light of my career, my man. But yeah, I built a Can Ham. <laughs> yeah, good for you. <laughs> well, I built I built the car that that I drove myself as well, and gave me. I had a lot of you know hands on experience. We didn't we didn't go out and hire prep shops and stuff. So, um. It was all kind of, you know, a family effort in-house. 
you know, had a, had a fly in type guy on the race weekends to help me out. And it, it, you know, gained me a lot of, uh, good experience for what I'm doing now. And, um, you know, I'm, I can, I can do just about as anything as what the guys can do on the team. And it, it helps me in understanding problems and helping them deal with problems. But, uh, to get back to the story, did, did two years, partial seasons in USF 2000. And at that point, kind of we're, we're at a standstill with finding sponsorship dollars and just ended up uh, with, with our shop. Uh, we had other competitors and, and alike asking for help with their cars. And it kind of by accident just turned into a, a prep business for, for outside clients. And um, it just really rolled from there. And uh, kind of our foray into the what became Road to Indy was in USF 2000 with um, Tony's Kazmetz in 2001 was sort of the kind of break we needed back then to, you know, kind of getting poles and winning races and, and really showing as a competitive team. Um, so um, when Dan Anderson announced the USF 2000 comeback in, in uh, 2010, we jumped on board and, and did uh, the national class originally and then eventually in uh, what became the A category and what is now the, the regular championship class. So that's in a nutshell how we got to this point. Well, I'm fairly convinced and have been for many years that the best road to Indy team owners are former road to Indy drivers and having gone through the efforts, tried to get to the top, learned all the realities, whether it's the finding money, working on cars, doing things on an efficient budget. Not a surprise that your uh, your Pabst Racing team is one that is succeeding now, continuing to groom quality drivers, obviously with Hunter, Hunter McElroy's success last weekend as well at Road America home race for you mm-hmm. and the team. I mean, it uh, <laughs> doesn't get a whole lot better than that. So, Wonderful to see just this constant building of talent, uh, really just driven from everything that you have learned and uh, are also able to now help groom next generations. Let's get into some of the questions because we have a lot of folks asking the questions I would normally ask. Uh, We have two that are similar, one from Michael Mueller and Scott Cooper. Uh, They both say in some form, Augie, do you have any desire to grow your team into the higher rungs of the ladder series or even the IndyCar series in the future? Good question. Um, yeah, yes and no. The, the yes part is currently we own two Indy Pro 2000 cars. We've tested them well over 3,500 miles, maybe more. Um, our plan for 2019 was to run three USF cars and two Indy Pro cars. And at the 11th hour, the two Indy Pro deals we had on the table started to go away and actually evaporated. So we went back to the four-car setup that we did last year. And really the, the goal there was to maintain our staff and, and keep you know, from the mechanics and, and engineering standpoint, not have to put anybody out of work and, and also to keep them under our tent. Um, the, the goal for 2020 will be to do the three USF cars and two Indy Pro cars. Beyond that, um, at the moment, we don't have plans to go to Indy Lights. 
I would never say never. Um, but at the moment we don't. And I would say that I would love to run a car at the Indy 500 before I've been put away. <laughs> we need to make that happen for sure. Let's go to another pair of questions that are similar. One from our good friend, Ralph Hibbard. Hey, Ralph. And also our friend, Steve Straub. Uh, Steve says, Augie, other than cost control, what are your thoughts on ways to increase car counts in general and the number of teams participating on the road to Indy? And Ralph says, Mr. Paps, if there's one thing you could change in the road to Indy ladder system to increase car counts, what would it be? Jeez, those are those are tough questions. Oh, man. yeah, no, we're not serving up all softballs here, my man. No, no. Um, well, the, I, sometimes I guess the, the easiest answer, and, and I do think it's a, a good answer and would be a solution, but it's not a very easy one to provide is to have more prize money. Um, you know, the, the scholarships have been fantastic and, and obviously it's what's made the road to Indy what it is. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're looking for a new sponsor for, for road to Indy and, and that's going to be a critical thing. But, you know, if, if, if there's a, I don't know the ratio, but if the prize money was a, a closer number, you know, as far as the race purses went. Uh, if that was a, a closer ratio to what the cost of doing this was, I think you you just you'll fill the grids like crazy. I mean, in my opinion, almost all racers are eternal optimists, and people will come because they'll say, "If we win, we'll we'll win enough to keep going." And if they don't win, they'll say, "Well, we'll win next time." So, I think that's one thing that would really be. Uh, you know, the, the best kind of helper to help this thing keep going and, and grow and, and increase fields. Um, I, I don't, I wouldn't say there's, there's really anything I'd like to change about the road to Indy. I mean, I'd, I'd love to see uh, the Indy lights, the cost of running Indy lights come down. I think it's, you know, it's uh, north of a million dollars. Um, I don't see how they can do it without pulling back events. And, you know, it, it, when you start pulling back events, then you're, you're less track time and all those things. And it plays into the world market of what other junior formulas are out there and, and you know, how much time do they get? Now it's a fair point. Let's go to Peter Croth who says, Augie, how do you judge a driver as being ready to compete in one of your cars? And he also asks you to tell something about your current stable of drivers. Okay. Well, typically in the, well, starting months ago, we're already talking to drivers for 2020. Um, you know, we look closely at their resume and what they've, what they've been doing over the last 10 years. Most of them have been racing since they were five, six years old in carts. Um, we, you know, we've, got discussions going sometimes for multiple seasons with kids who are in either carts or in 1600s and maybe 1600s for two years. So, so we look at, we keep tabs on a lot of them. Um, they typically will end up as soon as the season ends at Laguna in September, we'll start testing potential drivers. Some of them will come from, you know, the current, 2019 crop of drivers you 
you know, a second year guy is usually um, quite desirable. They've got track knowledge and a lot of experience. It's quite valuable. Um, but ultimately, you know, we test between 15 and 20 drivers, I would say, maybe more sometimes. And, you know, we, we just, we have a lot of boxes we need to check from their physical ability, their, you know, what the chemistry is like with them, what their, you know, their raw speed, their ability to give feedback. Um, quite honestly, how are the parents? <laughs> is do we have a little league it. mom or da- <laughs> little league mom or dad? Is you know, do we see uh, you know the next year of hell dealing with moms and dads and things like that? So they're they're all factors, and and you know, truthfully. There's a financial factor as well. I mean, we, you know, we, we can't do it for nothing and uh, we have to balance that out. So um, there's, there's a lot of factors that play into that. Um, I, as far as our current stable, I, I'm really happy this year. Um, I think we were just having this discussion the other day within the team that, you know, all four of our drivers get along really well Um our drivers last year got along really well, although when they put their helmets on and got out on the racetrack, they didn't get along very well. And we we did not win a race in 2018, which is very disappointing for us. So we've now checked that box. We've we've won. Uh, we've had three poles, and um, you know, I, I as far as uh, I can tell, I mean, I think that they're just they're all interacting well on the racetrack. So, um, and, and they work well together in the office when it comes to video and data and all these things. I mean, whether it's just, you know, socially or when it comes down to, um, you know, racing stuff, they're, they're all getting along well and, uh, it makes our jobs easier. Let's go to the last couple of questions for you, my man. Michael Goodyear says, having worked with many talented drivers as they come up the ladder, Augie, is there anyone who didn't make it that you really thought could have been a possible superstar? Um, absolutely. Um, we've, we've had, I'd say a good handful, but I'll, I'll, I'll pick out one who might, this might come as a surprise, but he's actually one of our engineers, Tony's Kazmetz. Um, Tony's is a amazing guy. He, you know, we, we ran him in 2001, 2002, uh, part of 03 in USF. I, uh, worked on his car in Atlantic in 2005. We came up just shy of the championship in 05 and he, he managed to do a couple of champ car races in 2006 and he's he's been in other various drives over the years, but to be honest, I just he's never had a fair shake in a in a good good car. Um, I think you know at the lower formulas, yes, you know we we did well, but I'm talking about in a champ car program, Indy car, um, sports car prototype type situation. He's just never had a chance to sit at the top level in a, in a a good piece of equipment with a proper team. And uh, I think truly, truly they've missed out because 
what he brings to our team is is amazing. It's invaluable. His his, his abilities as a driver, as an engineer, um, and as a mechanic, quite honestly. And I, I don't know if that hurt him in some way because he was always willing to, to work on the cars that he drove. I think the teams as he came up, the teams who were thought to be higher level teams were, um, I think, uh, somewhat, uh, I don't, I don't want to say scared, maybe intimidated by him because of the knowledge he had at a, at a young age. Um, but ultimately, I, I would give that answer uh, as far as I'd say Tony's for sure. No, fair point. All right, three to go. Steve Hamilton, okay. three, three to go for us. Steve Hamilton leads off saying, Augie, how do scholarship winning drivers like Hunter decide what team they'll race with? Well, ultimately... It is their decision. Um, my understanding is their decision 100%. Um, I think, well, I can, I can tell you from my experience that Hunter McElroy came and tested with us in 20, at the end of 2017. Um, we hit it off. He, he came and tested at the Chris Griffiths test. We hit it off very well. The chemistry was there. Everything was there. Dad was great. They're just, it, it couldn't have been a better kind of first date. And ultimately uh, received an email from his father and said basically straight to the point, what do you think? Do you think he's ready or do you think he needs another year in 1600s? And at the moment, I... I really could have used to have a guy like him in one of our seats because I, at the moment that email came, I didn't have a driver lined up for that seat, but I did know. And I felt truly that if he had another year in 1600s, he would, uh, he would be much better off when he came back. So uh, that's the answer I gave. I said, you know, I, I'd love to have you here, but truthfully, I know I know you guys really need the shootout money. And at at that point, he he wasn't going to be in the shootout. And I said, if you if you have your kind of one shot deal, the only way to do this is is come back. Let's come back next year, do the Griffiths test again in eighteen. Hopefully, you nail down the Australian F sixteen hundred championship and. You know, that'll be your ticket to the shootout and then cross all the fingers and hopefully you can win that. And, um, you know, I think Andy, his father, told me later that that was a, a critical answer that I gave that probably sealed their faith in me and us as a team um, to, to be their guys. So when they came back and did the Griffiths test. It, it went very well again this past in 18. Um, and I mean, they've, they maintained with us verbally throughout the whole time that if they, if they got to the shootout and won it, they'd be with us. I know other teams were hounding them like crazy. And, um, they, you know, I, I've been burned so many times. It was, it was, I wanted to believe them and I, I did believe them, but I had to keep telling myself this is not a done deal until it's a done deal. And, uh, they were true to their word. And, and, uh, obviously 
we know how that ended and and it is what it is now and it's been a fabulous relationship so um but ultimately i i think i gave a very long answer there but i hopefully explained how it played out for us <laughs> look here's the reality um, augie will power ain't getting any younger scott dixon ain't getting any younger we need a young aussie slash kiwi to help pick up the slack for those old farts they have been doing anything for years sure they're washed sure. up so anyways <laughs> kidding aside no and you know we'll see how things play out in uh, in usf 2000 but it's just great to see hunter among those in your driving stable uh, is Thank really you. looking like he has the goods to keep moving up the ladder and uh, who knows hopefully get him into indycar before too long so we can make sure we have that uh that down under representation uh continuing all right two Absolutely. to go our man jerry Sudduth. hey jerry says mr pabst would you ever consider running a meister browser scarab liveried car uh in honor of your family's history in racing and i honestly augie i'm forgetting if you ever have as we my cat have. Rocky jumps up on the table and and announces himself, my apologies hey, there. Um, you know what? We never have. Um, I think I think at some point that would be kind of fun. Um, yeah, that's that's uh, that's a good idea, and maybe we'll just kind of put that in the bin and think about uh, when when we could do that and when would be appropriate. I love it. We need to make this happen. All right, let's close the show with our pal nathan de rover who says mr pabst when you have drivers like austin sindrick renus vk and rasmus lind who continue up the indycar ladder or progress onto other series how closely do you follow their progress he also asks how much gratification do you take when they continue winning and are able to make a successful career that started with your team well we were very proud of those guys uh, very proud that we've had them through our stable. There's a, there's always some disappointments at different times when guys like, you know, VK and Lynn don't come and do our Indy pro 2000 team. Um, but at the same time, those are really good friendships, uh, relationships that have been grown throughout an entire season. And we absolutely follow them, everything they do. We're, we're their biggest cheering fans. Uh, they're, they're still a part of our team. They always will be. Um, that's, that's a, a special thing to have been a part of careers like those. And, uh, it's always fun to, to bump into them and, and, uh, you know, you know, kind of bench race and days gone by and everything like that. And ultimately, um, you know, it's, it's credibility to us as a team and, and, uh, yeah, we absolutely follow them. It's a, it's a, a really neat benefit of doing what we do and, and being a part of, you know, these guys and, and their growth in racing. Augie, thanks so much for joining us for the first time. I'm hoping this isn't the first and only time. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in and Hopefully enjoying the time spent with both Alexander Rossi and Augie Pabst. Going to jump right into the questions you have sent in for me and like the ones you had for my guests. Some really good stuff in here. Why don't we kick off with Budman89799 or at JG underscore Paleska on the good old tweeters. JG says, what would be 
the perfect scenario for Rossi staying with Andretti Autosport. Mentioned this a couple months ago, and I don't mind mentioning it again. I believe the only thing that would be needed that is not there right now is a long-term financial commitment from sponsors. And I'm not saying that Andretti Autosport is in financial peril. None of that at all. Just that with the fluid nature of sponsorship and motor racing, especially these days, if we think of a Roger Penske, yes, Verizon spends money, Pennzoil spends money, uh, Fitzgerald spends money, Menard spends money. There's a lot of folks that spend money with that team and or do business-to-business type deals. Underlying thing, though, is although Roger does not want to spend his own money to go motor racing, we're somewhat convinced that that happens a little bit in IndyCar, and he'd be able to do that just to provide Alexander absolute security. Any questions about whether there's going to be money to run you for the duration of your contract, forget that altogether. We've got it handled one way or the other. I think, as I mentioned a few months ago when someone asked this, I believe that's really the only thing Michael Andretti would need to ensure is handled. And so Napa has been an amazing sponsor. Originally came on for the Indy 500, grew into more races, now has become the primary at, I believe, just about every round. Obviously, we saw the uh, the gas renewable gas folks uh, and capstone on Alexander's car at Texas. But by and large, Napa has been the big driver behind things there with his number 27 entry. But I think, really, the only thing, if I am doing the negotiating for him <clears throat> and or weighing the pros and cons, he has a pretty amazing thing going right now with Andretti Autosport. I don't foresee I don't foresee things getting any better for him with any other team. Different, not necessarily better. So if the one thing that's a question mark, which is, hey, if I'm going to sign a two-year, three-year, however many year deal to stay, can you tell me, can you make me a promise? My faith in you will be rewarded in the annual budget to continue competing at the highest level and vie for championships, whether it's Napa, whether it's whomever, you know, I, I don't know what the name might be, but can you tell me this will be in place? And if you can, there's nothing anyone else can offer me that I can think of right now that would want to lead him to go elsewhere. I haven't heard of any kind of dream to drive for Roger Penske full time. There's some drivers that have that. Tony Kanon's driving for A.J. Foyt in the twilight of his career because that's a dream. Not because he didn't have other opportunities. That was just a dream. I think most drivers would love to drive for Roger Penske. I've just never heard Alexander say, as a little boy, I dreamt of driving for the captain full-time. Obviously, he has gotten a taste of what it's like being a part of Roger's Acura sports car team, but... He has a pretty amazing thing in place. If you also factor in one very important note, it's that while he had a good rookie season with uh, Brian Herta slash Andretti Autosport, where Tom German was his race engineer in 2016, it was 2017 when crazy, good old crazy Jeremy Millis came on board, 
moved over from the Ed Carpenter Racing Team when Joseph Newgarden moved to Team Penske. The reason that Jeremy, who was winning races and doing amazing things with Joseph, the reason he did not go with him to Team Penske is because he used to work for Team Penske. And as in past tense, (laughs) uh, that was not a happy divorce between Jeremy and Team Penske. So the reason that Joseph went there and did not bring his amazing race engineer with him because that ain't happening. And so here we have an instance where Alexander is vying for a championship, looking like someone who certainly can win it this year. If he were to leave, I just can't think of a scenario where Jeremy would be welcome back. And obviously it takes two, right? So it's not as if Jeremy's a bad person and it's all on him. Uh, I'm sure there are some shortcomings on the team side as well. But regardless, if Alex were to leave, it would involve having to start over again with another engineer. And I think many of you would agree that based on what he's done already this year at Long Beach by winning by a 1,000 miles and then winning on Sunday by 2,000 miles with Jeremy making the setup calls, uh, boy, there'd have to be a really extraordinary situation. A lifetime contract. Uh, unheard of money some sort of holy cow only under these really bizarre circumstances you're offering me what i think of leaving what i have right now so that just makes me think michael andretti can button up and promise for the next two three however many years your car is solid on funding i would think re-signing would be almost academic Second question here from Jeff Loveland on Facebook. Jeff says, it seems like the veterans were roughing up young Mr. Herta at Road America. Um, I had the exact opposite view of that, Jeff. Doesn't mean my view's right. I think it is, obviously. Seemed to me that Colton, yet again, I love the kid. You all probably know that now. I mean, I think everybody loves the kid who knows him. Um... He could not drive like that in Formula One. He would be breaking wheels and suspension components off the car. He would be driving three-wheeled cars in many, many Formula One rounds because those cars cannot take any kind of side-to-side, wheel-to-wheel contact because the suspensions are so light and fragile. He knows that an IndyCar can withstand those things, though, and drives to that absolute limit. And so it just seems to me like he, on the other hand, is willing to drive so hard and make contact with other drivers so frequently. uh, I don't want to say he's out there roughing up others intentionally, like he's purposely trying to hit other cars. I just think he's willing to overextend battles for so long after he's been passed instead of doing the thing that you kind of would expect give up the corner if anything if you see it coming cool slow down a little bit let the car go by but then give yourself the opportunity to accelerate even earlier and try and pass them back in corner exit at least as a rookie colton's way of working seems to be no i'm going to fight you every inch of the corner we're going to bang wheels. Uh, I I'll, might end up out in the grass, out in the dirt, whatever, but 
every instance, it seems like, is a reason to battle to the death. It's cute. It works as long as you're keeping the car on track and putting together really good results. But if you've had as many failures to finish as he has this year, it's not always been as a result of driving too hard and fighting too much. Just think mind, mindset-wise, this is going to be a really good year-to-year rookie, you know, call it freshman to sophomore adjustment for him to make. Because uh, there, there aren't a lot of wheel-to-wheel contacts left with some of the veterans of the series before they start seeing him in their mirrors and start thinking, I know what you're going to try and do. Let me do it to you first. If it's going to be, I don't want to say a sneak attack, but hey, he's going to try and pass me. And when he does it, he has no regard for my well-being and the two of us getting through the corner safely, only him. Well, that can change people's approach. And if you've followed IndyCar or, frankly, any form of racing long enough, you can tell when someone isn't trusted. And those who see that driver say, great, I'm either going to intentionally screw you up as much as possible or before you get me, I'm going to get you. Let me introduce you to the gravel trap, and your race is screwed. He has phenomenal talent, phenomenal everything. His instincts are amazing. Everything about this kid is amazing. Just a few adjustments, a few adjustments to make, and a lot of those non-finishes are going to be thirds, seconds, fourths, something, where he's going to start playing in the championship before too long. But if he keeps going the way he is right now, we're going to get a win or two, a couple polls. There's going to be a couple of definite high points every year, followed by a ton of lows. But he's too smart to let that happen. So I think it's really, Jeff, just a first-year scenario. Ray Schumann says, I also want to comment about the Andretti to Chevy rumors. That move could cause some interesting ripples. It would open up the possibility for McLaren connection for Alonzo at Indy. Not only would it get Rossi in a Chevy, but likely young Herta as well. Honda would have some money slash support to spread around, which could help some of the other Honda teams to up their game. Not sure if I'm going to write about it. Probably will for next week. Just thinking about the ramifications, Ray, of what you've laid out here how that could influence the rest of the paddock. I can tell you for sure Honda does not want to lose Andretti Autosport. That is two cars that can win at every round in Rossi and Alexander. I'm sorry, in Ryan Hunter Ray. That is a wild card in Marco, but we know he's usually pretty good on the ovals. Zach Veach having a weird year haven't really seen him find a direction but i think there's something positive there nonetheless that we're going to see eventually we know for certain at the indy 500 there's a fifth entry with someone like a connor daly or name whomever who's going to be extremely fast so with andretti you have 
an annual contender for the championship and an annual top three contender for an Indy 500 win. Take that away. That's an ugly situation for Honda. If you're a fan of Honda, if you're a fan of Chevy, yeah, it's awesome. This is the thing Chevy's been needing. I've written about that. Robin's written about that. Many have written about the fact that as we've seen play out year after year for a little while now, if it isn't team Penske, Chevy is really not going to be represented in the win column. Obviously when new garden was at Ed Carpenter racing, that was a team Penske plus ECR type threat, but they just do not have that with the non Penske Chevy teams right now. If we do have Chevy holding Andretti, holding Penske in the same stable, honestly, Ray, I cannot think of a single scenario in IndyCar for 2020 or years to come where the balance of power could in any meaningful way shift away from Chevy. And if we just look at the teams that would be left and we'll talk about maybe some of the possibilities of who might Honda be able to convert over to them. But if we look at the remainder, the, the non Andretti teams in the Honda stable, obviously there's Chip Ganassi racing. We know that Scott Dixon, five-time champ, also 38 years old, right? I don't know how many more years Dixie's going to want to do IndyCar, but we're not looking at Dixie as a five, seven, ten-year solution necessarily. We hope Felix Rosenquist is going to continue settling in and tapping into more of the badassery that we've seen coming into this season in a couple of instances where he's been very good. I think there is going to be a really good one-two punch there next year. Don't know if I see Chip Ganassi Racing being able to knock down Chevy's Andretti Autosport and Team Penske across an entire championship or the Indy 500. Not in any way. Aerosmith Peterson Motorsports with Hinch and Marcus Erickson. Very good. Not great yet. That's where they want to be. They want to be among the big three, among the great teams. They're not there yet. Obviously, Hinch had a good run going at Road America. That seemed to, again, be kind of trending in the right direction for him. Ended up seventh. Marcus, on the other hand, for reasons I don't fully understand, just looked out to lunch all weekend long on a track that many of us expected him to just master, knowing that long flowing high commitment circuit there in Elkhart Lake, not too different from many of the European road courses he's driven on, but some serious variables there though, that Aero SPM needs to work their way through. I think if Robbie Wickens was back, sure. He, he's a, <laughs> a generational talent. You know, you don't get too many guys like that per generation where you go, Ooh, <laughs> this guy is a monster. In an Aeroschmidt-Peterson car, reconnected with Blair Pershbacher Engineering? Yeah, I absolutely think we're talking about Robbie Wickens, Rossi, Newgarden, you know, Dixon up front fighting for a title. No disrespect to anybody else driving at Aero SPM, but Robbie made it known last year that guy is just 
in a different place. But if we look through the rest of the existing Honda stable, I mean the, the Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan team have been very good, very good. Haven't seen too many instances this year. I think Barber is really about the only one where it looked like Graham was, you know, definitely capable of winning the entire time. Takuma's been extremely good as well. I mean, they could have one or two wins by now, but they just have not felt like a true race-by-race threat. Looking at the Dale Coyne racing team, the uh, the French fry to my hamburger, he and Craig Hampson, Sebastian Bourdais, struggling more often than they expected this year. I think that's by and large due to some of the changes in tire compounds. Seb is just very, very susceptible to changes and can be not so much thrown off mentally, but just having to work through those differences to get to a happy setup. His young rookie teammate, Santino Ferrucci, seems to be less susceptible. Regardless, that team has been punching above its weight as usual, They've just never had the resources to become a true week-in, week-out contender. After that, where do we go? I mean, it's, it's RLL. It's Dale Coyne. It's Aero Schmidt-Peterson. There's just not a lot of real depth after Andretti after Ganassi currently on the Honda side. Obviously, there's the Meyer Shank racing team. They're still not full-time, so it's really not a discussion right there. Even if they become full-time next year, as Mike has told us multiple times, is a goal. They're not going to be vying for a title next year. It's, it's going to take years before that might become a reality for them. Just saying, you take Andretti off the Honda board, I cannot see a path where, in the short term, Honda has a legitimate chance winning the title, winning the Indy 500. If you look at, as was presented here, as a you know possibility or at least a, a theme to follow that Ray has mentioned, what if, with Andretti moving to Chevy, if that were to happen, What option would Honda have then to say, spread some of the money and love around, spread some of the technical resources around to help improve some of the existing teams? I mean, the Ray Hall, the RLL outfit jumps out as the first place that if there were to be that kind of investment, I think they would be able to jump up and become more competitive very quickly. And it's not like they're far off. It's not like there's a long way to go by any means. It's just that standard of, are you a team when we go to Iowa, Toronto, Long Beach, (laughs) Coda, St. Pete, Indy 500, whatever. Are you a team, week in, week out, we know you are going to be in the thick of the fight for the win and therefore the championship. It's just three. It's Penske, it's Andretti, it's Ganassi. Two of those right now are Honda. If you switch that around and make it 
two cars in Hunter Ray and Rossi with Andretti and three cars at Penske, that's five that can seriously win every round. On the Ganassi side, only Dixon. So with Andretti off the board in this theoretical 2020 thing and Ganassi being the top representative left for the brand, knowing that really, at least right now, Dixon's the only one we're expecting to be able to get into victory lane. If it's not Graham Rahal, I'm just not seeing Honda's wingman and giving them two serious attempts to break through the five that Chevy would have to get into victory lane. We know that, again, Hinch on occasion has looked like he could win. Sato, we think, should be able to get a win, one win per year at least, maybe two. Bourdais could account for one or two. But we're just talking sporadic, not consistent. So I think, Ray, that's really really what Honda would have to look at, exactly what you mentioned. If we lose Andretti, how can we help some of the teams that aren't currently really factoring into the championship puzzle how can we help get a Ray, a Ray Hall there? How, is there something we can do, who knows, with Felix to help accelerate his learning curve? Is there something on the Aero Schmidt-Peterson side with either Hinch or Erickson? Obviously, I'd love to have Marcus back, as I've mentioned before, for many years. But you know, if Robert Wickens is not going to be back in that car next year, who knows? I mean, we obviously want him back immediately, but there's a question mark there. Is Air Schmidt Peterson Motorsports the strongest version of itself right now? Or could it change on the driver's side? In addition, on the driver's side, in addition, on the engineering side, uh, more name the various engineering tools and resources that Honda might be able to share with Aero SPM to quote, speed them up. Dale Coin Racing really and truly jumps out as the one that I think could benefit the most from it. I don't know if the response would be as quick to that help as an RLL. But I mean, here's something just to consider. We think about the engineering R&D that goes on during the preseason. Let's just call it the off-season. You think of a smaller team like Dale Coin Racing, the money they have to commit to turning over as many rocks as possible to find speed that will help them throughout the 2019 season in this example. The dollars to rocks turned over ratio is fairly modest. It means that they have great people, great engineers, great ideas, but a limited amount of money to go and explore, turn over as many rocks as they want. It's a relatively small number of rocks. And they hope that whatever they find will help pay dividends throughout the season. But they really don't have the money to do that during the season as well. Look at some of the bigger teams. Not only do they have more money, which then allows them to turn over more rocks and in theory find more of these small performance advantages to help them throughout the year. Many of them have enough money to continue that exploration and to keep turning over rocks, maybe not as many, but at least keep the search going throughout the season. 
not a surprise to me that here we are just past the midway point of the season, strictly talking about the Dale Coyne racing team. They're super hit or miss every round. The rivals, Honda rivals, let's just stick with Honda rivals. The Andretti's, the Ganassi's that are usually faster than them just about everywhere. It's because they're able to extend that R&D effort and keep searching and keep finding things. They're not limited to what they found in this case six, seven, eight months ago and hope that that keeps paying off throughout the year. That's where Dale Coin Racing is at. And so by this stage where they've more or less exhausted all the little performance benefits they found during the offseason, that's all they got. <laughs> it's all they have. And they'll try and make them work. But in terms of new ideas, if we want to use NFL examples, they're not gaining any yardage. They have stopped gaining any yardage and are having to just be content with whatever they found. But that gain, there's no more. Then you look at their rivals, and even if it's a small amount of yardage, they're gaining because they have the money to keep pushing and keep going. That's where not only the, the gap comes from in lap times, but also the consistency gap. That's why, again, coming back to the central premise here, the big three are the big three, not just due to physical size, physical intake of money. It's because all of those things allow them to have a big footprint and impression on the championship. From the first race at St. Pete to the season finale in Monterey, they are able to keep pushing their engineering initiatives forward to find the little gains that allow them to be more competitive race in race out than those who either don't have the money to do that like a deal coin racing or those who don't have the best staff and personnel to help find those little performance advantages so that's where say a honda if they were to have money to spend to improve some of their teams if andretti were to leave I think Ray Hall Edmund Lanigan might be more competitive from the outset in terms of podiums and possibly wins because they're closer to that threshold than Dale Coyne Racing is right now. But I do think if Honda were to spend that money, some of that money with DCR, you would also have a team that, yeah, you know, they're seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, twelfth, whatever it is on a given race. I think that would at least get them into the conversation thirds, fourth, maybe, fifth, sixth, something, but a lot closer. So I think even a modest amount with coin would get them into a more competitive conversation from round to round. I think with Ray Hall, I think it would be the thing that moves them up just that little bit to be almost in that big three conversation in terms of competitive consistency on the Aero SPM side. From what I know, their budget's really good. So I don't, of course, every dollar helps. I just don't think they're the ones in particular that with money spent there, there'd be a huge knock-on effect right away. Still, th- I'm still not exactly sure what's needed to get them closer to where they want to be. Let's go to Becky Webb. 
Becky says, hey, Marshall, love the show. Thank you. Keeping your family in our thoughts. Thank you again. Question says, we saw a lot of brake glow in turn five at Road America, our favorite corner at our home track. And said it was more brake glow than we've noticed in prior years. Were there changes to brake components this season that would account for that? Or do we just never notice it before? And also said, P.S., we didn't get a chance to catch Marcus Erickson post-race to present him with a bratwurst. We'll try harder next year. And we owe you one as well for your abysmal failure uh, at following my directions. No worries at all, Becky. There was a change in brake vendor last year. Brembo, which supplied the spec kit from 2012 through 2017, was replaced altogether in terms of brake caliper, discs, and pads. Performance Friction Corporation has taken over. Definite increase in glowage, as you mentioned. So that did start last year, but would not, would not have been there for the first, I guess, 20, what, when we returned in 2016, 2017, so much. Also believe that while the weather was beautiful, did notice that there was a little bit of cloud cover here or there, so that might have just helped with a little bit of shade, helping to highlight the big glow that popped up. So I think between those two, the shift from Brembo to PFC, plus maybe a little bit of cloud cover as well, I think that really might have made the uh, thousands of degrees of energy being burned off and sent into the atmosphere think that might have been the reason that you happened to see what you saw. Go to Ryan Terpstra. Hey, Ryan. Thanks for sending in stuff every week. He says, MP, did you know that teams are required to use sticker red tires in a race? He says, I couldn't figure out why the broadcasters kept saying Colton Herta needed to run his set of sticker reds. I thought it was just at least one set of each. Okay, so this would be a prime opportunity for me to tell you that Boy, I sure am smart, and I know a lot of stuff. And, of course, Ryan, I knew that. But, no, on our show where, at all times, we do our absolute best to be completely honest, even when we suck. <laughs> I need to raise my hand and admit that I sucked. Uh, that I suck. Maybe past tense, too. I did not know this. I, I did not know this. I then went and looked it up in the rule book after hearing it during the broadcast. Uh, or I wasn't, I don't believe it. No, I didn't get a chance to watch it live, but when I did watch it, yeah, I, it never really occurred to me. I don't know why it should have, but it didn't, but I then went and looked it up and indeed the rule book spells it out very clearly. Uh, let's see, what is it here? It is rule 15.3.3.2.1. And it says, single races colon one set of new brackets sticker alternate tires and one set of primary tires must be used interesting at least looking at this there's no call out for sticker primaries just one set of sticker alternates must be used so in theory you could certainly start the race. I shouldn't say in theory, I guess in practice, you can absolutely start on a scrub set of primaries and there's no need to run a stint on a brand new set. So again, that makes sense because we've seen that happen how many times? I don't know why this didn't occur to me. I think this also maybe draws back to Colton being very honest in his assessment after the race that 
Maybe we have some work to do on strategy. In speaking with Rossi's engineer, Jeremy Millis, for a little story that we did, although this wasn't included in the story, part of the conversation we had was his surprise that Colton's team started him on scrubbed reds, just knowing that those really would have been expected to not not last as long as desired, which is exactly what happened. So Colton as well seemed to be a bit mystified by their choice to start on scrubbed, then go to the black primaries, then close on sticker reds. We'll admit that it wasn't triggered by this one race, but have been thinking for a little while now that if we're talking about taking a next step for the Harding-Steinbrenner racing team, strategy seems like one thing that could maybe use a little bit of fortification. Obviously, Circuit of the Americas, a lot of it was good fortune, but you could say, well, didn't strategy win them the race there? Again, in theory, you could say that. But just in general, a couple of races have stood out this year where not sure they have been on a level playing field in terms of strategy calls with some of the rivals they've been fighting against. So might be an area, Ryan, for them to think about if there's uh, someone who might be able to add their expertise to the timing stand. Let's go to Luke and Henry Chapman. Both sent in similar questions and got uh, some good insight on this. Said Marshall, with such a rightfully huge emphasis on cockpit safety, why would race control feel comfortable leaving a big chunk of concrete so close to the racing line? And this is in reference to Sunday's race at Road America where we saw it turn, what, five, I believe, eight. Sometimes I get a little fuzzy in the head on the numbers. We did see in the right-hander there that a pretty decent chunk, as Luke mentions, broke away from the uh, curbing and wandered out basically middle of the road. There are some other smaller chunks next to it. Henry Chapman also mentions, I admire IndyCar's persistence to try and stay green throughout a race, but at some point there has to be a line. He says, I know it was the, uh, the chunks that Luke mentioned were off the racing line, but there was still a fairly large piece of concrete just laying on the track at a fast corner on Sunday, and not only could it damage another car, but could also damage a driver. And so reached out to IndyCar race director Kyle Novak and said, hey, some folks are asking some pretty darn good questions as usual. Any thoughts on what they are questioning here the thinking and reasoning behind it and he mentions something that i think mitigates everything and he said this is not and i'm not quoting him just paraphrasing this was not concrete this was not a truly hard solid material it's uh, was made up of an aggregate basically and when it breaks apart, it's not like a, you know, a true rock boulder type thing. Um, it would basically have broken apart like a big cluster of dirt if it had been hit. And so knowing that it was not this, call it rock solid piece, 
Uh, I think that was part of the reasoning of, hey, if someone were to run it over, it would flatten it compared to turn it into a projectile. And I think the other thing, too, was it was, again, reasoning-wise, it wasn't two inches off of, say, the left front tire, left rear tire as the IndyCar drivers were cornering, was it looked to be a fairly safe distance away. There was, of course, a note from Alexander Rossi in the post-race press conferences where he said, honestly, the debris on track was nowhere near the racing line, wasn't an issue. I know that the first reaction might be, well, of course, he'd say that he was leading and didn't want a yellow, but I did speak with Robin Miller, and he told me that Joseph Newgarden and Will Power said the same exact thing. So the guys who actually would have benefited from a yellow to clean up the broken up curbing, both of them said, no, honestly, you would have to be way offline to have hit it or make a mistake in the middle of the corner or entering the corner, I should say, to uh, run across it mid corner. So even the guys who were chasing him, who would have benefited, if anything, really, if they wanted to lobby for it, could have, they also both agreed that had they gone yellow, had they cleaned it up, had Rossi's advantage been erased, there was no way they were going to catch him on the restart. So I think this is a case of the visuals not matching reality. If it was a piece of bodywork, something jagged and sharp, or I don't know, a suspension piece or something like that, definitely sounds like IndyCar race director Kyle Novak would have brought us into a caution to get that off track. But based on what they know about the circuit and the fact that I believe that corner is known to break up a little bit, so it's not exactly a first-time thing. It just sounds like this is something that they had a fair amount of knowledge of. Therefore, not a big surprise. And also, as he said, since it was made up of something that would have become fairly powdery if it was hit, I think that's what led us to the non-calls in question. Let's go to Keith Lee. He says, Marshall, what are some of your favorite racing and non-racing podcasts uh, that I happen to enjoy listening to? Would say for sure, Dinner with Racers, number one, if we're talking racing podcasts. I am a little bit biased since they were silly, silly, silly people to have me on in the first season, the first uh, go-round of the Dinner with Racers uh, podcast series, so... Definitely, though, everything that my friend Sean Heckman and Ryan Eversley come up with, it seems like. Um, I can't think of a dud, <laughs> honestly. So if you have not listened, uh, if you're one of the uh, glorious few who are not aware of the Dinner with Racers podcast and also some of the really cool video stuff that they do, in particular the Alan Cole Wiki series that Sean put together, um, yeah, this is just really good stuff. Uh, their format is loose and conversational. It tends to be a longer sit down and they also do a fair amount of research and also come up with some really good questions of their own. So a little bit of probing stuff that they have researched, but also, yeah, uh, <laughs> they're really good at what they do. And so I have a feeling if you like some of what we do here, you'll probably really like what they do there. Maybe even more. Um, so 
yeah, I would say Dinner with Racers is just something that is a joy when I see that they have new items that come out. Also, based on, I think, just differences in busyness and otherwise, uh, they are not able to, you know, they're not pushing out new content every day, every week and whatnot. You tend to get two, three, four times a year where they do a, uh, a dump, the distribution of whatever the number is, five, ten plus podcasts. Uh, so I really like that aspect as well, where you you know it's going to be a couple of little bursts of Christmas from Dinner with Racers. So that is something I would definitely recommend and something that I have enjoyed among racing podcasts. See, the real answer, though, Keith, is things have gotten busy enough for me, and this is before things really took a heavy priority at home. My podcast consumption has been really and truly dialed down to almost a bare minimum on a regular basis. So it was uh, once upon a time where Adam Carolla's podcast, Joe Rogan's podcast, Mark Marin's, um maybe one or two others bill simmons uh it was a you know i was getting a little bit grumpy when i wasn't having new content every day kind of thing but it's been a while honestly since i have digested a lot of podcasts and i don't even listen to my own uh just time well granted i'm there doing it so i don't know why i'd listen to it again but yeah just not haven't had a chance to do much of that. The last podcasts I really listened to that stood out to me that I enjoyed is or were one or two from Bill Simmons' somewhat newish media project, The Ringer. So listen to some there. This one might be a surprise. I don't know. But Oprah Winfrey has a series that she kicked off, I think, last year. And it's a first-person one and was listening to one from Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, for example, I think on the drive to, I don't know whether it was Mid-Ohio IMSA or Mid-Ohio IndyCar, but really enjoyed uh, listening to some of those. And I'm trying to think what else. Probably the one I enjoy the most altogether, and it sadly is no longer a thing because the host, Captain Jack, died. Uh, But it was... And I have them saved, and I listen to them on occasion, just listen back to them over, you know, somewhat repeated over and over again. It's the uh, Captain Jack Show. And this is a longtime hip-hop industry insider uh, dating back to the 80s. And so his guests, it's just amazing. You know, instead of being a media guy who interviews hip-hop legends, this is someone where, he was there with and in and around all the legends. Not an artist himself, but uh, someone who... Uh, it's just really cool to listen to the one-on-one era reverie and all the inside stories and whatnot. So if you happen to be a listener of the Little MP podcast and you're a fan of hip-hop and you aren't aware of the Captain Jack show, would certainly try and find that and download it wherever you can because it is amazing, but sadly, with his passing, it is no more. Other than that, I would say this, since I am finding myself now with, I don't know what the number is exactly, but it can be right now somewhere between five and ten hours a week at minimum, 
either sitting in a car waiting while my wife is at an appointment um, or, you know, having a treatment or whatever it is. There's a lot of still doing nothing time. So if there are podcasts, probably not racing podcasts, honestly, and since I work in the industry and have kind of my whole life, uh, it's kind of like listening to work a lot. But if there are some non-racing podcasts that come to mind, if you have any feel for my general sensibilities, let me know. And uh, if they aren't among the ones that I've mentioned, please recommend because maybe this is a time for me to re-engage there. Mike Brennan says, Marshall, after listening to your comments about Marco Andretti on last week's podcast, do you think there will come a time when Andretti Autosport decides it's time for Marco to go? Got a feeling that was kind of sort of possibly being considered last year. Marco signed a multi-year extension. Marco also then bought into his own ride uh, and is now a co-owner. One of, you know, I think three or four co-owners of the car that he drives. So he does have a personal stake in the vehicle that he drives now, Mike. I think whereas it might have been a case last year of the team, I'm not sure if it's sending a message by not being very fast to send him a new contract. I don't, you know, I'm not, I can't, I can't say, obviously wasn't there. As I mentioned somewhat regularly, although ask, they don't forward me their contracts. Um, I can only imagine some of the reasons why I would say now that Marco is a co-owner of his entry, Instead of that meaning, boy, it'd be even harder for them to get him out of the car. I think it might be the opposite and not a them thing, but a him thing. I think it might be a case of he could see a business reason if presented to him or one that he finds uh, a young driver with talent and money where it might actually be more beneficial to put them in the car. I think that becomes the easier answer. I know that last weekend at Road America, definitely speed happened to be there. The uh, Andretti Autosport team as a well, almost as a whole, rolled off the trailer in a really good place. They had mechanical problems in the issue uh, in the race with Marco. I just I'm running out of reasons I can think of why Marco would want to keep doing this for too many more seasons that doesn't mean anything though truly that's just me saying i'm struggling to find justifications if i were putting myself in his shoes i'm not him though he's still extremely young 32 years old Uh, very you know he can do this for another decade if he wants i look at the fact that he has a sixth at circuit of the americas great at a sixth at Detroit, seems to run well at Detroit every year. Um, what I think he has a tenth at Texas, but those pair of sixth, sixth, and that tenth, those happen to be the highlights of the year. Everything else is, I think, a thirteenth or fourteenth place or worse. And so, with not a lot of Mechanical failures. Really, Sunday was the first that comes to mind. 
So there's just been a lot of events where there's been no nothing remotely competitive. I think the Indy 500 was the low water mark. Just been a lot of bad, bad races. Might ask, hey, he's got a rookie IndyCar race engineer and Mark Bryant. Could that be some of it? Sure. I think I also mentioned last week, Mark is someone who I believe is really a a race-winning, championship-winning engineer of the future. So I'm sure there's been some instances where he has missed the setup badly. Might not be too much of a surprise working your first year in IndyCar as a race engineer at that level. The same time, there's just been some events where it's looked like Marco just really hasn't wanted to be there. So I don't know what all the answers are here in terms of moving forward, at least, Mike, but I would say that he's still young. I believe he has a passion for driving. And I believe that after, what are we talking about? 15 years, 16 years, I don't know, you know, a ridiculous number of years in IndyCar. It'd just be silly to think that out of nowhere, uh, Marco is now going to pressure Rossi, Dixon, Newgarden, and whomever else, power for a championship. Doesn't mean he lacks the talent, I think, as I mentioned last week. But how many, how many times do you need to do the same thing over and over again? Have nothing major in terms of a different result and believe that out of nowhere, things are going to magically change. I mean, he finished ninth in the championship last year, which was, I would say, good, very good. The best he's ever had was fifth in the 2013 uh, championship. I mean, that was seriously impressive. Other than that, the majority of his career has been 7th place, 8th place, or ninth place in the championship. And just pulled this up right now because I'm doing that off the uh, top of my head. He has, he's finished ninth three times, he's finished 8th three times, and he's finished 7th two times. Uh, after that, Beyond that fifth place I mentioned, he's 11th one year, 16th another, 16th another. He's currently 16th, and he has a 12th. There comes a point where numbers tell a true story. There's definitely a point where you go, hey, haven't been doing this long enough to rely on those numbers to really draw a definitive answer. Based on last year, ninth place, pretty darn good i don't know if there's any reason to believe that if you keep doing this again and again and again it's going to turn into third and second in the championship maybe even first and so at that point mike i just say that if winning a championship is not going to happen and you're still young you have a chance to do the Indy 500 every year and there's really cool stuff taking place in IMSA for example where you can go and drive and be free and run up front and have great battles 
and make some new memories. This is something where, where when Marco was doing the ALMS and LMP2, he was a beast. I just think we're, I hope we're not too far away from Marco making that realization. Because seeing him come back year after year to hope to crack the top 10, he can make better decisions if that's what he feels he should do. Let's go to Road America fan who says, why do some drivers that are way back, say in 12th place, leave almost all their push to pass unused? Don't they want to blow it on the last few laps and gain one place? In a lot of those instances, we have drivers who have committed to an alternate approach quite often. Those who are not really qualifying in the top eight, top ten are going into a race thinking about, okay, we're going to be saving fuel from the beginning, hoping that yellows play out in a way where we can pit, go off strategy, and use this alternate strategy to leapfrog folks at some point. And so that's why I think more often than not, you have those in the back who realize that, okay, burning up extra fuel by smacking away at the push-to-pass button, not necessarily the smartest thing. You also have, I think, some folks who are in 12th place or 15th who realize we're not going anywhere today. (laughs) I can hit this button all I want, but just as I mentioned about Marco, you know, hey, if everything goes well and you finish fifth in the championship this year, great. Fifth sure isn't first. Yeah, uh, I think there's also just a, a bit of a recognition that, sure, we could use push to pass and burn extra fuel, but what is 11th going to get me uh, really by going into this mode? Of course, you'd say, well, one more spot, maybe a couple points. Sure. If we're talking about a championship contender, I would absolutely expect them to be on the button to try and get every position, just as Scott Dixon did coming forward throughout the entire race. But if we're talking someone who's running 12th because that's really where they're at, I think there's also a bit of a practical recognition as to why that might not be too necessary. Let's go to Mike Stoops has two questions here as we're starting to get pretty darn close to the end. Mike says, I recently read an article in Fortune magazine posted in May stating that IndyCar is still losing money. What do you know of the financial status of IndyCar? I guess my initial reaction to that, Mike, was the, uh, the use of the word still. I don't know if anyone has really expected internally for IndyCar to be a profit-making thing. I believe the mindset has been more of be very smart with your money. You're not getting a big budget out of the uh, Holman Motorsports slash Holman family assembly of things they own. But overall, the, uh, the Holman George family are the benefactors of IndyCar. They're the ones who take the income from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway from whatever sources of income that they have and put that into the series, put that into the Indy 500 prize money, put that into a variety of things. So I guess just general business standpoint, as I understand, has not been one of IndyCar as a thing we own 
and it is seen as a money-generating thing to the positive, but more of a do everything in your power to bring in sponsorship, be smart with who you hire, what you pay them, be smart on everything, get the best sanction fees you can, yada, 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 all with the goal of minimizing the annual expense from the family as much as possible. So I don't foresee fortune being able to write anything other than that kind of forever. Maybe (laughs) Um, it would take a radical change in mindset. And I also don't think the series would survive if uh, someone from the family said, if you are not in the red, I'm sorry, if you're not in the black, if you're in the red, you're done. Well, if that's the case, I think IndyCar would indeed be done. Mike also says, here's your weekly engine manufacturer question. If IndyCar changed course and revised the new 2021 formula to include an electrification aspect, how long would it delay the new engine implementation? How would Chevy and Honda react? And is a rethink by IndyCar possible? A couple of great things in there, Mike. Anecdotally, not stating this to be fact, just this is what I've heard anecdotally. Honda, definitely behind. Hybrid, Chevy, less so. Have seen from those two brands in IndyCar that they have been deferential to the series. If this is where IndyCar feels it needs to go, we will support it. They're both amazing, truly amazing citizens of the sport. So if this is something Jay Fry and his team decide to do and bring in, I have a feeling both would go along. We think about delays. I think this is the part where we have two things to consider. If this is something that IndyCar wanted to bring in in 21 with the new engines that are meant to go into the old Delara DW12 chassis for one year and then bolt directly into the brand new chassis for 22, if they wanted to do this hybrid edition for 21, fitting it into the DW12, that I think is going to be a little bit of a challenge. I've heard of some customer bolt-on kind of things that could possibly work. I'm not going to go into that right now. I think some of that is still a little bit under wraps, kind of going back to the not everything is meant to be spoken about uh, the moment you hear about it. I think there might be a bolt-on solution that could could go into the existing dw12 that would work and could give the desired hybrid boost what i don't know is if the thought would be hey for 21 we're going to do this thing and it's just kind of a stopgap, make it work with the dw12 but then in 22 with the new chassis in theory if we're going to do this hybrid thing You would have to design space for a proper battery, I would assume, to fit somewhere, usually beneath the rear portion of the carbon fiber tub, beneath the uh, fuel cell. That's what we see in Formula One, for example. There would have to be some very serious planning, a lot of architecture design within this, I don't know, what do we call it, DW22, to fit a proper hybrid system. 
the fallback would be, or I shouldn't say fallback, the uh, fall down would be, I can't think of any IndyCar team owner that would say, sure, <laughs> we're going to pay for a system to be used for one year to fit in the old thing that we're still racing. And then you're going to come back with basically a, a custom solution the following year. My guess, and again, I, I'm not saying either one's correct. My guess would be is if they are going to, if they do decide to introduce a hybrid with the new engine package in 21, it would have to be something that the new chassis was designed to accept. Uh, and whether the teams pay for it, whether it is part of, uh, I don't know, the engine lease. I'm guessing the engine lease number would go up a little bit in the manufacturers, uh, supply them, you know, a spec unit, but something that is integrated within the drivetrain. One of two things. Either it's coming in 21 with this new engine going into the old chassis, and it has been designed with the new chassis coming the following year to be accepted in their same way. So what we got coming in 21 carries over for the next three, four, five, however many years, no matter what chassis it's in. Or B, IndyCar says, we're going to introduce it, but we're waiting till 22 because we want to do a proper kind of clean sheet of paper integration with this. So one or the other. I can't see any scenario, Mike, if they choose to do this, where they have one kind of short-term solution for one year in the old chassis and then ask folks to go to something totally different and new the following year. Let's go to Daniel Kincaid, who says, MP, what do you think about changing the size of a fuel cell? In the IndyCar, would dropping it down a gallon or two change the strategy that much? Said engine manufacturers have done such a good job with fuel mileage that I wonder what reducing the amount of fuel a car carries would do to the racing. Quick answer, Daniel, is nothing. The reality is you can remove fuel, you can add fuel with the amount of yellows that tend to come in during a race, some at opportune times, some inopportune the amount of fuel, unless you were talking about cars start the race like they do in Formula One with everything they need to finish the race. And I realize that in some instances, even in Formula One, drivers have to save fuel a little bit from time to time. But unless we're talking about removing that question altogether, you know, taking a gallon or two off, if everybody has to deal with it, I mean, that's just in theory making them potentially stop half you know one more time half more time but again who knows what yellows do uh if anything it's a rarity for a race to go like it did at road america without any caution periods so it's just straight up full bore racing start to finish as i mentioned earlier for those qualified well tend not to do a lot of fuel saving if any and for those who haven't you tend to get fuel saving straight away hoping to use an alternate strategy to their advantage so whether it's with an extra gallon or two or a gallon or two less, I wouldn't foresee that really changing anything. Let's go to Steve Hamilton who says, Marshall, I hate to be that guy, but the light panel still only displayed the car numbers at Road America. I was there and it was fine when we could see a screen, but tough to know the positions they were in when pit stops were happening and when we couldn't see a screen, etc., etc. Not a lot of help there. What's IndyCar's plan moving forward? Maybe a new RFP for new potential vendors yet again. It was great seeing another caution-free race. 
I swear, Steve, I am indeed. All right, this is a lie. I am going to start IndyCar light panel problem helpdesk.com. I don't know. I really don't know what's going on. I swear that I did see at least the push to pass working at times with some drivers during Road America, but I've just stopped asking. And I know that those who really enjoy the panels, when they did work properly, either the first generation, now the second generation, well, I take that back, third generation. Um, yeah, I think it adds. I think it's a good thing. I think it's a, a something IndyCar, something that should be a unflappable thing for IndyCar to make happen. All right, silly Silly suggestion here. Could this be an NTT data? Could this be an aero electronics solution? Um, you know, maybe something involving sponsors within the series helping to come up with not only the hardware, but the software that would make them work at all times and stop being what appears to be a race by race question mark. I don't know. Um, your frustration is one that I know is shared by many who send these questions in on a weekly basis saying, what's the deal? Why aren't they working the way that we're told that they would? They serve no purpose. If the cars already have numbers on them in vinyl or in a wrap, we certainly don't need just another thing. They're showing their number if that's all they're going to do. So I'm with you. Uh, if they're going to be on the car, I think they should actually serve a purpose that isn't redundant, uh, like just car numbers. So like I said, who knows, maybe Aero electronics to the rescue or NTT data, or maybe there's another vendor I'm not thinking of that's currently involved in the series. Maybe they can help make this a no brainer. Forget about it. Always works kind of solution. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Ed Joris. He says, Hey, my wife and I saw a seal master sweatshirt at road America she wanted me to buy one. I took the money uh, I would have cost and donated it to your GoFundMe page. My apologies to French Fry. Thank you, Ed. Truly, thank you for that. No need to apologize to the French Fry. Uh, I think he's okay. He'll, he'll be able to stay warm with what he has. Um, and who knows? Maybe uh, I'll see if my friends there can let a uh, the sweater that you were, the sweatshirt you were going to buy, maybe I can steal one off of their truck and, and, and slide it to you, so. Um, thank you for the note there. Let's go to Kijan Woods. Send in two questions here. I'll take the latter one. He says, what was the real effect from the Penske's at Road America, both Will Power and Joseph Newgarden, running a lot of downforce, even though they both were blazing fast over the field? I assume it was to save the tires for the end of their stints. I would say you would be spot on there. Uh, I definitely know that tire life was a significant concern for everybody and as we saw with the penske cars it looked like they were a bit over downforced if we're talking blinding speed in the race so i would say that if i was making that call i would be saying hey we're going to lose the straight line battle but this should be something that helps us to keep your tires keep the car keep the chassis been happier and more planted in the corners therefore extending tire life. So from what both Will and Joseph said after the race, they weren't unhappy with their cars at all. Uh, they were working just fine. 
they apparently got the maximum out of what they were capable of doing with them. It just was nothing like what Alexander was able to do. So I think in their case, bolting on the extra downforce was a good thing. Just maybe also while you fixed one thing, it created a negative that only exacerbated how strong Alexander was. Because if you can't keep up on those really long straights, that's going to be a killer as well. Let's go to Mark Summer, who says, Marshall, my chassis setup experience is limited to off-road motorcycles. Well, that's fascinating, Mark. I know nothing about this, so I'd love to learn more about it. He says, with motorcycles, damper valving characteristics and spring rates are based on the rider's weight and riding style. Then the sag in the dampers is set. From there, high speed and low speed compression and rebound are fine-tuned via, quote, external clickers, as well as minor changes to spring preload. Can you walk us through typical IndyCar damper selection setup and available external fine-tuning adjustments? Might be a bit of a, uh, a longer conversation than we would normally do here, Mark. We did in, I think, last week's, possibly, or the week before, my Inside the Sports Car Paddock show that I uh, kick off every week with my friend and fellow race engineer, Jeff Brown went into damping fairly heavily and explained a lot of the things, if not, I think just about everything you're mentioning here. So maybe I guess I'm, I'm trying to bump my other show here, but I would definitely say check out one of the more recent episodes of inside the sports car paddock, uh, head over. If you haven't already to marshallpruittpodcast.com or all the episodes are curated. There's a little tab towards the top that has, all the inside the sports car paddock show. So click on that and you should be able to find that mention in the show description. So we just, just say it might be a, a better place there since we've already had this conversation, uh, Jeff and I, and it's, I think 20, 30 minutes long. So definitely go to the level of depth. I believe that would interest you. And if it doesn't shoot me another note and, uh, can try and add more things here that might, be of interest if desired. And if you, dear listener, just want to know more about modern dampers and how they work, and this is whether it's an Indy car or a high-level sports car like the prototype that Jeff engineers, a DPI and IMSA, be a fun conversation for you to listen into. Let's go to David Gallagher. Gallagher, not Gallagher. God, man, my brain is just not working. Dave Gallagher says, do you think with new technology being added, like curves or a battery, you think it may lead IndyCar to a performance gap between teams, or do you think we have the right people in place to keep the balance we have right now with multiple race winners? Everything I believe that would happen if IndyCar were to adopt a hybrid system uh, or create an electrified battery-based system that would then make the cars hybrid. Sorry, it's a distinction there. Uh, David, I think it would be a spec system. So... I think this is something where it would not create any real gap at all because I believe everyone would be working with the same technology. Could there be a difference in some teams figuring out how to, I don't want to say exploit its full benefits better than others, but could there be some teams that really figure out how to get the most out of it? Possibly, but again, that's all depending on the rules. If it were to happen, how they would be written. If it's deployed automatically, if it's the equivalent of a push-to-pass button, where truly drivers just have whatever the number is, 50, 75 electric horsepower to, boop, hit, and send the rear wheels, 
lot of that stuff in what could be fully automated got your drivers you know have nothing to do with it it's deployed automatically and or no it's driver controlled that's all dependent on the rules but i think it's going to be spec uh if it again does happen therefore i don't think there would be any real major area where a big team could create a gap to a smaller team if everyone's using the same thing let's go to darren dubois who says mp it appears jr hildebrand has been relegated to indie one-offs curious what your thoughts are on his career or how his fellow competitors view him he does seem to find the top 10 at indie quite often yeah man i love me some jr hildebrand it's a good friend on a personal level but as a professional i sure wish we still had him in the series full-time darren the thing that was frustrating to see was when he came back i believe it was 2017 for you know effectively getting a second shot uh this coming with ed carpenter racing certainly wasn't everything that he hoped it would be the team hoped it would be sponsors hoped it's working with a first year indycar engineer as well and as i mentioned earlier that also makes things a bit hard they're going to be big days where you're on plus big days where you're off that you tend not to have with veteran engineers just because again they, they know what they're doing more because they've done more of it i think that quote second chance that he got and the fact that it didn't really work out and it didn't lead to more I think that baked in the end of his full-time career and the fact that he is able to find sponsors to allow him to come back and continue competing at Indy every year, having Salesforce, which is a giant company behind him. That's amazing. I hope that only continues for many years to come. So I think he's viewed as a definite asset when it comes to ovals. Don't believe the viewpoint extends beyond that. But as much as I would love to see him every round, because he's just a really good guy, he brings great things to the series, etc., etc. If the worst thing in his life is a fact that he only gets to drive an Indy car once a year at the Indianapolis 500, <laughs> he kind of has the rest of the world minus 32 other drivers beat right i mean just if that's if that's the downside of life then man sign me up for that so wish it could be more but also even with this one-off routine yeah um that's pretty amazing uh let's see let's go to jordan darwin as we get down to the last couple of questions he says mp with mclaren building a wind tunnel it got me wondering what the indycar rules were on the limits on other forms of testing away from the track, wind tunnels, CFD, long airport runways, secret tunnels in Pennsylvania, etc. I do not know all of those, Jordan. Uh, I wish I did. I should probably. I guess in theory I should know everything. Well, <laughs> as I remind you all every week, boy, <laughs> I sure haven't got that covered. I do know that manufacturers have a limited number of wind tunnel days that they're allowed to do. Uh, I know on the CFD side, there's nothing I can think of where there's been limitations there. There's some limitations certainly put in in terms of testing, actual firing up the car uh, and going and using it. 
there are some limitations there as well. So it's maybe one of the more interesting modern aspects of IndyCar Jordan, where it used to be, for the most part, you know, manufa- there was once a time, not too long ago, where there was a big uproar because test days were cut to only 40 days per year, only 40. And the thought of engine lifing, trying to get 2,500 miles between rebuilds, and you can only score points with so many engines per year towards a manufacturer's championship, it's just never really consideration. Uh, If a manufacturer wanted to go somewhere with their car, whether it was a track test or some of the things you mentioned, long airport runways, they did it. They fired it up and did it. Uh, the only thing that was really being governed was the number of on-track test days. That's just been locked down so heavily where you know, it's it's almost a rarity to hear that someone has gone and done something kind of unique in terms of wanting to learn something and have either been allowed to or you know just you don't hear that much. I mean, think about Indy 500 testing, the amount of days that tire manufacturers used to spend there just teams renting the facility uh, used to be a frequent thing. Now, other than the odd Firestone tire test done by a couple of teams to help benefit everyone in the paddock, other than the official, you know, say an ROP or an official one-day test prior to the month of May, I mean, that place just is not used at all by comparison to what it once was. So, yeah, just not really a big area uh, where firing up a car and doing fun things with it is allowed mike strack asks if i've heard any attendance figures from road america said it seemed pretty packed i'd have to agree mike just from what i saw uh, i don't have any attendance figures though and we'll come down to our last two questions shay small hey there shay from down under asks what do you guys think of the new tie-up with the road to indy in the new zealand toyota racing series do you think it will help getting potential future stars into IndyCar, I have to believe it will, Shay, knowing that you know we're not talking about a huge, like, doors wide open, here's tons of money, but just more of, all right, we've tried to smooth the path a little bit, create something formal, helping out here with entry fees a little bit, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we know, we know that there is a great lineage of Australian and New Zealand talent, decades upon decades in IndyCar, which uh, is just the fact. And it wasn't so long ago, I guess, kind of came to an end in the early 90s, I believe, but the uh, New Zealand Winter Series, where all the young guns would go down under and race in Formula Atlantic, and that was a thing to do between seasons. And it was just badasses there as well. Um, I hope we can restore this link to what it should be. Uh, because there are more Scott Dixons and Will Powers and you name it coming, uh, or or the potential of those coming and backfilling for sure. Hunter McElray, who we spoke with uh, his team owner, Augie Pabst here, um, yet another one. There should be more Hunters on the way here. So I can only hope that with this formal relationship in place with the road to Indy, that there'll be more takers. All right, let's close with Tim Falkowitz. He says, Michael Andretti was wearing Kamoa sunglasses when they interviewed him after the race. Can we read anything into this regarding ties with Fernando Alonso? All right, time to uh, for the big reveal I saved for the end. Tim, you found it. 
You found it, buddy. This is a, a certainly a big secret revealed. Michael Andretti unknowingly tipped off the fact that, yes, he's going to be firing our first guest, Alexander Rossi. I didn't, I didn't have the heart to tell Alex, but uh, Michael is indeed firing Alex at the end of the year and hiring Fernando Alonso to drive the number 27 Napa Auto Parts Honda. So, <sighs> hate to close on a downer here, but uh, just, you know, it's time, time to acknowledge. No, all smart assery aside, Tim. Um, yeah, I mean, hey, you know, they're friends. Um, I'm sure lots of folks on the crew were given Kamoa sunglasses by Fernando, and not a surprise that Michael would be wearing them. Would it surprise me to write a story in the coming weeks or months that there might be, I don't know if I would say Fernando specifically, but at least the McLaren team that he's affiliated with, that there might be something there more formal happening again with Andretti Autosport? It wouldn't shock me at all. At all. So, Watch this space. There could be more Kamoa sunglasses, although I think I did just read a press release either today or yesterday that McLaren is now selling sunglasses. So that's going to be the real tip-off, Tim. Watch for the next Michael interview when he's wearing McLaren sunglasses. That's going to be the high sign that a deal has been done for 2020. All right. This has taken about three days to put together. On this podcast, I hopefully the starts and stops and the difference in the tones in my voice, one from being early morning one day, late night the other, afternoon now uh, for I think the third or fourth crack. I've had to take this to get it all done. We're at the finish. And thank you. I did answer, I believe, just about every question you sent in for me. And as always, thank you for sending those and the awesome ones that came in for Alexander and Augie. And we will look forward to speaking to you next week. On the Week in IndyCar, presented to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets, USA.